Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Surah Mumtahana, Surah number 60, verses number 10 to 11. So we translated these verses yesterday, and we have to comment on them. This is basically after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was made. This, as you know, was before Fatih Makkah. This is in the year, sixth year after Hijri, when Sayyidina Rasulullah and Sabiqram were on the way to Umrah. Long story that we covered for you in Ramadan. Then the disbelievers, Mushrikeen, stopped them and there was a treaty that was made that is known as Treaty of Hudaybiyah. One of the clauses of that treaty was that any person from the Quraysh, from Makkah Mukarramah, who accepts Islam and comes to Medina Manobra will have to be returned back to Makkah Mukarramah. However, any person who, from Medina Manobra who chooses to return to Makkah Mukarramah to the apostate will have to be returned back to Makkah Mukarramah, cannot be kept in Medina Manobra. However, this clause had a verbal exception of women on the condition that is mentioned in these ayat. So, in the actual Treaty of Hudaybiyah, there's no written mention of this, but there was mutual agreement verbally that women were exempted from this clause. So, the manner in which women are exempted from this clause is mentioned in these two ayat of 10-11, on the condition that the meher that was paid to the woman will be returned. So, what does that mean? So, if a woman in Makkah Mukarramah decides to accept Islam, she can migrate to Medina Manora. She is not covered by this aspect of Treaty of Arabia, but the Muslimin have to return the meher that her kafir husband had given her. If she is able to, she still has it, it will be returned. And if she didn't have it, then the Beit al-Mal, the Islamic treasury, would have to return it. Similarly, if there was any such woman who decided in Medina Manora to renounce Islam and go back to Makkah Mukarramah, then either she or the people of Makkah Mukarramah, the Quraysh, government of the Quraysh, would have to return the meher that her Muslim husband gave her. So this is basically simply the ruling that is being explained here in verse number 10. Now, among some of the mu'minat who came alone like that, the most famous perhaps is Umm Kuthum, who was the daughter of Uqba, who you know Abu Lahab, Abu Jahal, and Uqba is probably maybe the third most famous disbeliever famous for his persecution and oppression of Sahaba Mu'mineen, especially Sayyidina Bilal So, this is a case uh, where this is not a wife. This is another case which is a daughter. So it so happened that the husbands of Makkah Makkah Kafar, they had no problem that their wives who became Muslim can go to Medina Manorah. But the single women who were Muslim and migrated to Medina Manorah, their fathers, such as the case of Uqba, had a problem and they actually tried to demand the Prophet to return her under the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and Sayyidina Rasulullah said no, that by women it didn't just mean wives but it also means unmarried women and daughters and Sayyidina Rasulullah did not return back Umm Qusim or any other single woman who came to Medina Minara having accepted the deen of Islam. And after obviously the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was violated by the Mushrikeen uh, then obviously all of these clauses uh, were rendered null and void in any case. Then comes the question, which normally is technical, I wouldn't mention it to you, but I want to show you difference of opinion, is that Allah subhanahu wa said in this passage that there is no harm on you if you marry them, right? That there is no harm on you if you enter into nikah. So the question is that when the woman Lee accepts Islam and by accepting her Islam, her marriage with her non-Muslim husband 
is immediately declared null and void, fask is abrogated. When she comes to Medina Manavra, does she have to spend an iddat? Or can someone marry her immediately? So agreement is obviously if she happens to be pregnant, expecting, then she cannot get married until she delivers her baby. But if she is not pregnant, does she have to spend her iddat or not? The Imam Abu Nifa, because his fiqh is very much actually based on Qur'an. That whenever he sees something in the Qur'an, he doesn't like to go against its literal meaning. It's contrary to what much propaganda would suggest. Then they suggest that the Hanbalis are the literalists and the Hanafis are not. But actually, in light of this ayah said that because Allah said you can marry them, you can marry them without her having to spend an idda. However, his two major students, Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, they both said that no, this is not an exception to this rule. Because any, all the reasons why a woman should spend inda when she gets divorced should also be there when a woman's marriage is declared null and void by Sharia. So their view was that no, that the woman has to spend her inda and only after she completes her inda then she can she get married. The reason I'm telling you this, right, is that this shows you that contrary to what many people will try to make you think, that supposedly we follow Abu Hanifa blindly. No, even his own students tend to follow him blindly. And whenever his own students or any of the ulama and fuqaha up till now, over 1200 centuries, found and agreed with his reasoning and evidence, we follow him. And yes, if somebody doesn't know his reasoning and evidence, and yes, they will follow him on the basis of trust because they have no other choice. It's not a question of following blindly. And when even his own students didn't agree with his reasoning and evidence, then they felt free to issue another opinion because that is what Islam required of them their due diligence and their responsibility and their honor and integrity dictated that they must issue the fatwa according to what they felt was correct later jurists in this case have preferred the position of Imam Muhammad and Imam Abu Yusuf and that a woman will if so even today if let's say there's a Muslim woman and man who are married the man becomes an apostate he openly publicly there's not a question of ambiguity here he openly, publicly, absolutely, clearly disavows Islam, becomes what you would call a self-confessed, professed atheist, then in Sharia, the nikah bond between them is immediately rendered null and void. However, that woman will have to spend her idda before she is able to marry another mu'min. All right. Then verse number 11 was that if any of the wives of the believers leave you for the atheist, the kuffar of Makkah but then you have your turn, what does that mean? Then you have your own women, Muslim women, come back from them, so you can pay those who have lost their wives the equivalent of what they have spent. All this means is that you can exchange the money internally. For example, if there is a Muslim woman who was to apostate and go back to Makkah and now her husband is owed the mayor of a thousand dinar. But vice versa, there's a woman in Makkah who became Muslim and she came to Makkah And now the mayor that is owed her kaf, her husband, is one thousand dinar. Then instead of giving it to Makkah you can give it right here. That way there is, so you don't have to take the chance that the kaf, her husband, will not pay the mayor. You will have a mutual exchange. It's simpler than I explained it. But here, it's something that you should be able to understand. The last part of this ayah is antum bihi mu'minun. That you should fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala antum bihi mu'minun. That same Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that all of you believe in. So this is a very important ayah of Quran. This is the only place in Quran where Allah ta'ala has used this sigha, this contract. 
What does it mean? Allah Ta'ala is addressing meaning that once you have believed in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, then you should fear in that very Allah Ta'ala that you believe in. This is something for all of us that we lack. And again, this is our topic for tonight, inshallah, how to fear Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. That we have iman in Him, but we don't have fear of Him. So this Allah Ta'ala is saying, Quran, you should fear that very same Allah Ta'ala that you have iman in. Means that iman and fear are one and the same. Khashiyat ilahi khawfi khuda is part of a person's iman. Our iman is not mukammal and kamal until we fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And here the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means that one aspect of fear is following every last drop of sharia. Every minutiae and particular detail of Islamic law that is also done out of fear. And the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something that overrides any of our rational concerns, rational objectives, societal concerns. Then verse number 12 in Surah Al-Mutahna. Ya ayyuhun na'audhu billahi minash shaitan rajeem bismillah al-Rahman al-Rahim. Ya ayyuhun nabiyu idha jaakul mu'minat. Yubayitnaka ala an la yushrikna billahi shay'a. Wala yusrikna, wala yuznina, wala yuktunna awladuhunna, wala ya'tina bi'buhtanin. يَفْتَرِينَهُ بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِنَّ وَأَرْجُلِهِنَّ وَلَا يَعْسِينَكَ فِي مَعْرُوفِ فَبَايِعْهُنَّ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَهُنَّ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ Translations, O my beloved Prophet When the believing women, Mu'minat, come to you and they come to you for what purpose? يُبَايِعْنَكَ To take bear to you To take bear on what? So bear means to express a commitment when a person has an intention in their heart to express that commitment by entering into a covenant or a pledge with someone, so they want to take bear on what? What is their intention? What is it that they're going to commit to, pledge to? Allah Allah Shay'a, they will not associate any partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They will not steal, they will not commit zina, they will not kill their children. This is referring to the practice in pre Islamic jahali, female infanticide. That even means we learn from this ayah that it wasn't just the fathers, even mothers used to practice this. Even mothers used to kill their baby girls. Now this is a horrific, this is the extent of jahiliyyah. You would think that she herself is a woman, so at least she would have empathy that okay she's a baby girl, but obviously women should be allowed to live, otherwise I wouldn't be alive. But this is clear that no, the women had to take bear on this, because that was such a deeply extent practice in pre-Islamic Arabia, that even the women used to bury their female babies alive, so that they will not kill their, it mean, literally children, but it means their female babies. And they will not do bohtan. Bohtan means that they will not slander, uh, they will not slander or fabricate lies. Literally, bayna aidihinna means literally between their hands and between their feet. It means that they will not do so openly and manifestly. They will not slander openly and manifestly. Sometimes you can also translate Bayna Aidihinna Barjulana means they will not slander openly by means of their own devices and plots out of their own will and volition. And finally, Wala Yasina Kafi Maruf and they will not disobey you, Sayyidina Rasulullah fi Maruf in any matter that is known to have come from you. So this is the intention that these women took. Let me just finish the translation, then I will explain this ayah to you. So, given that the believing women came to you in this way, Allah Ta'ala commands the Prophet you should take their bear. And number two, and you should seek forgiveness 
on their behalf or seek forgiveness for them in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala indeed you will find that when they come to you with this sincerity and they make this bayah and you take their bayah and you make a stick far for them then when these four things are done you will find that that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving is all merciful this ayah is also I'm going to use this ayah to illustrate a couple of things to you it's a very good ayah to show you principle of tafsir, also principle of hadith commentary and tafsir and also principle of contemporary practices today, classical and contemporary practice of today. The first thing is that this ayah is in Surah Mubtahina. So the rupt between this ayah and the rest of the surah is that there are multiple occasions in hadith. And in fact I'm only going to mention to you hadith in Sahih Bukhari. So that that qawm which says that we only accept Quran and Bukhari they will be completely satisfied today. Always know that that is incorrect. We are people who follow Quran and Sunnah. And the Sahih of Bukhari is just one drop in that ocean of Sunnah. It may be the best drop, right? But that doesn't mean you are mukallif, you are liable to follow the entire Sunnah. If I tell you you have to drink the whole glass of water and you find out that one drop is the most purest drop, but the command by Allah is to drink the glass of water, then you have to drink the whole water. You cannot say, no, I only drink the purest drop of water. Alright? First incident mentioned in hadith because that will show you the rupt between this is yes, when those muhajirat, mu'minat came when did they come? They came first to Hudaybiyah the very first incident was that right there literally even right when Suhail ibn Amr who was the person sent by the kuffar of Quraysh to negotiate that tree with the Prophet at Hudaybiyah right there and then some mu'minat showed up and they were mu'minat who were secretly having Islam and they had not been able to migrate to Medina Manawra because it was so far away. How could they make that journey? But when they heard the rumors, which were correct, and it's not rumors, they heard the story that Sayyidina Susam and Sahaba reached all the way up to Hudaybiyah. So they thought, okay, this is an escape we can make. We can escape from the clutches of our father or husband or brother, whoever was oppressing them. We can make it to Hudaybiyah. And then we can join Sayyidina Rasulullah and Sahaba there. And then in Hudaybiyah, then we'll enter into sanctity. So some mu'minat, they came to Hudaybiyah. And their niyat was of hijrah. They didn't know that the Prophet was not going to be able to make Umrah and go back. But the niyat was to join the kafila of the caravan of Sahaba. And then eventually then return with them to Medina Manawra. So their niyat was hijrah. Therefore they're called mu'minat muhajirat. Right there while the treaty was being negotiated. Some of them came. Now you remember in the beginning of the surah, those of you here yesterday, that Allah SWT said you should test them. Test them means you have to verify that their iman is true. That's it. One way that Nabi Karim verified that, mentioned in hadith, is this particular issue of taking their bayah. Right? So they came to Nabi Karim and they showed their sincerity by making this bayah to the Prophet. So this hadith is uh, in Bukhari and it is narrated by Umm Atiyah and she said when Sayyidina Rasulullah when the Mu'minad pledged their bayah to Sayyidina Rasulullah then he recited this verse to them 
And then in addition, at that moment, Sayyidina Rasulullah also added something which is not in this verse. He also made them pledge that they would never practice Nuha. Nuha is what in Arabic is called when a person dies. Some of the Arabian women they used to wail and scream in their grief over the passing away. So this is prevented in our deen. So Nabi Yusuf added something. So two things you learn from this. First, you learn from this hadith that yes, there was an incident directly relevant to the surah. And second, that Sayyidina Rasulullah amended this as well. Means it's the sunnah of the Prophet to add and amend to these words, meaning to take pledge from the mu'minat on anything that he felt was something that would show, would be a test of their sincerity to make tawbah. Because why am I saying the word tawbah? So let me return to the ayah. At the end, what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? يَأْسِينَ كَفِئْ مَعْرُوفِ Means that they will not do any type of masiyah. So that means that after mentioning certain specific kabair, major sins, then the bear is that they don't want to do sin at all. And it also shows the authority of the sunnah because they, Allah Ta'ala didn't think around that they won't disobey Allah Ta'ala. La ya'sinaka, they won't disobey you. So this establishes the authority of Sayyidina Rasulullah so they will not disobey the Prophet in anything that he does. Right? So this means that they are pledging to all the laws that have been revealed up to this point, Hudaybiyah, and all the laws that will ever be legislated by the Prophet until he passes away, they're pledging themselves entirely to Sharia. And when you pledge that you will never do Ma'siyah, that is called Tawbah in Ardeen, that a person is making an intention, a commitment in the future, they will never ever commit sin. Alright. So this is then been labeled by Mufassirin and Muhaddisin who have commented on Bukhari as Bayat al-Tawbah, that these Mu'minat women were doing Bayat of tawbah Second hadith in Bukhari, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas narrates that once he went with Sayyidina Rasulullah to Eid al-Fitr, Salat of Eid al-Fitr. And when Sayyidina Rasulullah completed the Salat, after the Salat there's a khutbah, he completed the khutbah, then Sayyidina Rasulullah passed through the rows of men, the walk some distance until he reached the rows of women. Yes, in Masjid Nabwe, women used to pray behind the men such that there was a fair space of gap, different Historians have mentioned different numbers of rows, but there was a gap. All right, that was when there was sufficient space in Masjid Nabi. Now, if any of you go to Madinah Manawar, Alhamdulillah, Masjid Nabi is packed. So now we have rather a partition. The function of the wall is actually kaim makam, the function of the vast number of rows, because the purpose of the separation by distance is also said they're out of sight. So that function is established by partition. The reason I mention this is the so-called Salafis of today. They're so literal. They say, look, in the time of the Prophet there was no wall. Therefore, today there should be no wall. But the reason there was no wall is because there was a massive gap. And in some of the gatherings they hold in the West, they have the men and the women sitting left and right with no partition between them. And no gap other than a small aisle, which is about, maybe you could put one chair in that aisle, with a small gap. That is Khilaf sunnah And the Hadith is mentioning that Sayyidina Sallallahu he walked from the rows of men to the rows of the women. Now if that was just one row, you wouldn't call that a walk. Sayyidina Sallallahu had to walk some distance to reach the rows of the women. And then when he reached the rows of the women, then Sayyidina Sallallahu recited these same verses of Qur'an, and then he took bear from the women. So this shows, and then, when he took bear from the women, the extra thing he did on this time, is he spread out a sheet and he asked them to contribute sadaqah, and then women began to cast their rings and jewelry onto that sheet. They started giving sadaqah. So what does this mean? This shows that although yes, this ayah is in Surah Al-Mumtahina, because some people will try to confuse and say, no, this ayah is khas. 
to those muhajirat mu'minat. So the Sahih of Bukhari establishes that no, Nabiya Kareem Sassam's taking bear from mu'minat was not caused to this because the same hadith in Bukhari that mentions that this ayah, an incident containing this ayah took place at this time of hijrah, but the same Sahih Bukhari mentions it took place when they were sakin in masjid in Medina Manawara in Masjid Nabi on the day of Eid al-Fitr. Alright. Third, in Sahih Bukhari, also it is mentioned the bear of men. This is in Sahih Bukhari Kitab al-Iman, narrated by Sayyidina Ubadi ibn Isamat. He says that a group of Sahaba were sitting with Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam, And Sayyidina Rasulullah turned to that group of Sahaba and said, They give bear to me. On what did you same almost identical words that you will not ascribe partners to the sponsor, you will not steal, you will not do zina, you will not kill your children, you will not come forth with slander, which you do openly and deliberately, and you will not be disobedient in any maruf, in any known manner. And then the Prophet said that this is Allah Ta'ala's pledge. This is Allah Ta'ala's, sorry, it's Allah Ta'ala promises, pledges to reward whoever will fulfill this covenant. And whoever breaches this pledge and is punished in this world, then the punishment in this world will be expiation for him. And anybody who breaks this pledge and Allah Ta'ala doesn't punish him in this world and conceals his sins in this world, then his matter will rest with Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala may forgive him if Allah Ta'ala wills or Allah Ta'ala may punish him. Sayyidina Badim al-Samad then after narrating this he says, then all of the Sahaba pledged to Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. So it shows that not only is this bear not only is it a mistake and misrepresentation to say the bear is khasud muhajirat mu'minat. It was armed for even other mu'minat and it's even for mu'minin, even for male. So it shows Sayyidina Rasulullah used these words on multiple occasions. Sometimes adding something, sometimes leaving something, sometimes giving commentary. So what does that mean? So this is what the Mashaikh and Ulama of Tazkiyah and that I will explain to you a little bit further. That is why the Mashaikh and Ulama of Tazkiyah take bear. Why? Because we are liable that whatever model we find in the Sunnah, we will use that. So because you have three incidents mentioned just in Bukhari and there are other incidents mentioned in other collections of Hadith. And this is mentioned in Quran. So it is established as a Sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah that when someone comes with you with and they themselves say that their expression they want to make tawbah they want to renounce all sin that you so to speak take a test of their sincerity mumtahina imtihan and you ask them to express their sincere serious resolve and commitment to this by means of taking a bear and you should also know that elsewhere Allah Ta'ala said in Quran inna ladhina yubayi'unaka innama yubayi'unallah now again, that eye has a specific occasion of revelation, but its meaning is arm, it's generic to every type of bear. So it means that Prophet whenever they take bear to you, after they're taking bear to Allah Taala, Because Tawbah is made to Allah Taala, right? Our expression of sincerity is done to Allah Taala. So what does that mean? That we make Tawbah bear to Allah Taala with someone. And this is a Sunnah Amal. Now this is classified by the Fuqah Sunnah Ghayr Muakkadah. Why? Because not every sahaba, you cannot sahab it from a that every single sahaba made bear to tawbah. What does it mean? But those sahaba ikram, in the case of the mu'minat, who themselves expressed their intention of tawbah, as in this ayah, some sahabiyat Prophet himself went to them in Eid al-Futr and told them to do this. Those male sahaba in narration of Ubadr al-Sahabat, the Prophet himself told them to give bear. So sometimes the sahaba will themselves present themselves for bear. Sometimes the Prophet himself told sahaba to give this bear. So it is part of the sunnah 
So that is why the ulama of Tazkiyah, and that ayah is coming again in Quran, I will explain it to you, that they all, the Prophet some said in hadith, al-ulama u-waratutu anbiya. So the ulama are the heirs to the prophets. So one function of Nabi Karim Sassam was Tazkiyah, was to purify people. One of the sunnah methods in the sunnah model of Tazkiyah was to take people's bayah. So this is why the ulama of Tazkiyah followed the same sunnah method of the Prophet And again, if somebody comes to them and wants to express that they want to change their life, and they want to make Tawbah from previous sin, then they take, they ask them to make this expression, and the same Sunnah is continued, then they make Dua to Allah Ta'ala for them, Dua Makhrat Istighfar, and then Allah Ta'ala inshallah will be Ghafoor Rahim, and He will be forgiving and merciful, and accept that expression of Tawbah. Verse number 13, That all you believe do not take as your awliya, do not take as your deep, intimate, absolutely trusted friends such a community that Allah SWT is angry with them. And so first attribute of them is Allah is angry with them. Second attribute is they themselves have despaired, have lost all hope and despaired of the hereafter. Just like the disbelievers who are already the companions of their graves, just like the disbelievers who are already entered into inhabitants of graves, just like they have despaired of the Akhirah. So this is the last ayah. What does this mean? So you saw that much of the surah, those of you here yesterday saw that it was talking about not taking as awliya disbelievers and especially disbelievers who are fighting against deen and expelling you from your homes. So Allah Ta'ala ends on the same note as Allah Ta'ala began earlier on the surah. And again we mentioned to you that غَضِبَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ is Allah Ta'ala's anger specifically was falling on the Jews of Medina Manawra because they were such a community that were plotting and contriving against deen and trying to fight against deen plus suppressing the truth about the deen, suppressing the truth that they knew that Sayyidina Asum was the last and final prophet and messenger, plus aligning themselves to try to bring down the deen. So any person who is still like that today will fall under this category that Allah Ta'ala's anger has come upon them. And the second part that they have despaired of the Akhirah, what does that mean? So it means that just like the dead, so just like the dead kuffar, they have pat- there are several ways the ulama have interpreted this. Number one, those kuffar who were entered into their grave, they're entered in their grave in such a state that they didn't believe in life after death. So they had no concept of akhirah, so they had completely despaired of any akhirah. So just like that, such people whom Allah is angry with, they have also lost all hope of akhirah. But second meaning is that they have no hope of akhirah. means that just as the kuffar entered the grave, the ishara is that they also died on kuffar. You see, one thing is a person lives as a disbeliever, but we say Allah knows best what state they died in. But this is making it clear that no, they are al-kuffara min ashab al-kubur. So they are ones who completely, absolutely guaranteed died on the conviction of atheistic or polytheistic disbelief. So such a person has no hope left in the akhirah. So Allah spawned, so they have passed a point of no return. Allah subhanahu is saying is that these people also, because they are so plotting and conniving against Islam, and Allah's anger has come upon them, that they are also past the point of no return, no hidayah can come to them, and they have only despair when it concerns the Akhirah. Next surah is surah number 61, surah As-Saf. As-Saf means the battle line, and this is going to come immediately in verse number 4. The battle lines of formation of rows that the Mujahideen used to form. 
Maqtan, it means it is tremendously, enormously disliked. You could even say it's tremendously, enormously hated in the regard of Allah SWT that you do this, that you do what? <coughs> that you say what you don't do. In Allah, you hibbulladina yukatiluna fi sabilihi saffa. That indeed Allah SWT loves tremendously those who fight in his path. I've explained this to you before. Muqatila and Kital is fight. Katil means kill. Yukatiluna means they fight. Right? They strive militarily to repress aggression or oppression. Peace be in the path of Allah SWT. Safa in discipline, well-ordered rows and formated for, rows of formation and ranks. Ka'annahum bunyanun marsus. As if they are like a solid foundation, like a solid building. That's the way they It's like imagine a solid building moving. Again, that's how well formed and how strong they are in their rows. What was the occasion of revelation to Imam Tirmidhi in his Kitab al-Tafsir of his Jami has mentioned that some of the Sahaba were sitting together talking about A'mal, A'mal Salih and they were wondering that which is the Amal that is most pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when they were discussing that Allah ta'ala revealed this on the Prophet's heart that why do you say what it is that you don't do? Now what does this mean? Right? So some Sahaba were sitting and saying that if we knew what was the Amal that was most pleasing to Allah we would do it. And this is that group of Sahaba and I did this for you last year in but it came earlier in the Quran that some Sahaba stayed back from Battle of Uhud. Right? And these were particularly those Sahaba who had accepted Islam after Battle of Badr. And they had said that oh we missed Battle of Badr we wish we could get a chance for Jihad so that we could do that act that's most pleasing to Allah but they delayed a little bit in going out for Uhud and then they ended up being left back. So Allah SWT is saying that why do you say what you don't do? You say you want to do what is most pleasing to Allah SWT but you, uh, when you had the opportunity to do so you didn't do so. Right? Uh, <coughs> so that is one initial incidence but obviously the umum of this ayah means generally everything in deen right? that's the rupt between ayah 4 and ayahs 2 and 3 but generally, ayahs 2 and 3 have a general meaning that we should not say what we don't do, right? Sometimes people will translate this in this way, that you shouldn't practice, or you shouldn't preach what you don't practice. So the answer here is a bit confusing, right? The answer is that yes and no. Put it this way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us two hukam. One, yes, we have to practice deen ourselves. But second is also Amr bil Maruf wa Nahay anal Munkur to do dawah, to invite and enjoin others to do good and to try to help refrain them from evil. Right? And certain hadiths suggest that yes, if you're unable to stop yourself, but if you can stop somebody else, then maybe you're stopping that other person from evil. 
Allah Ta'ala will make it a means of hidayah of you being able to stop yourself from that evil. For example, let's say there's somebody who cannot control backbiting, right? But then she gives a talk to women about backbiting is wrong. So now it depends about the niyyah. If her niyyah is that I'm showing off and I'm as if I'm a person who don't do backbiting, and she's talking and her mind thinks like that about herself, then she would fall in this eye that why do you say what you don't do? But if her niyyah in her heart is that, okay, look, I cannot even, I've not been able to 100% stop myself from this. Let me share this with others. Maybe in the act of expressing how much Allah Ta'ala doesn't want people to backbite, maybe I will also realize. Maybe her tension can be that maybe Allah Ta'ala, if Allah Ta'ala puts barak in my words, somebody else listens to them and permanently stays away from backbiting, then Allah Ta'ala may accept that as a means to complete my hidayah and make me complete on tawbah. If she does it with that niyyah, then she doesn't fall in this ayah. Right? So it has to do with the inner outlook, the batani kefiyat of a person. Right? However, on the other hand, there is a very strong hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah when he was taken on a tour by Jibreel Islam of Jahannam. This is on this in a miraj. And Jibreel Islam showed him that there were some people whose tongues were getting cut by scissors of fire. So Sayyidina Rasulullah asked him, that, Ya Jibreel, who are these people? He said, oh, these are the wa'ideen of your ummah means these are the bayan givers, lectures of your ummah, and they used to enjoin others to do good, but they forgot to do good themselves. They did not practice what they used to do. So the Muhaddisayn say that this should instill fear in us, that we should not even want to say anything at all, lest our words be a testimony against us in the Day of Judgment. But then when they complete the commentary, they say that this is strictly speaking for those people who preach and they don't address themselves first. Their niyat is excluding themselves, they're just addressing others. But if their niyat is that they're addressing themselves also, and they are the first which needs to practice their own words, then inshallah the hope is that Allah Ta'ala will exempt them from this. Sign of this that I will add, sign of this is that does your own bayan bring you to amal? And if you find that you tell people something once, twice, thrice, ten times, twenty times, hundred times, and it still doesn't bring you to amal, then you have to be more scared that this eye applies to us because we're saying what we don't do. But if you say it once, twice, thrice, and then okay, now at least you also even start doing it a bit, and then you say it a few more times, you start doing it a bit more, then you can hope that okay, no, you will not fall under this ayah, and you're actually also addressing yourself. Obviously, the other thing in verse 4, but this is the only ayah in the surah, and I've talked about this before, but just simply speaking, Allah Ta'ala has mentioned the fazilat of the mujahideen, inna allaha yuhibbu, and this is one of those few dozen or so ayat where Allah Ta'ala mentions who is it that who he loves. So this ayah, verse number 4, surah Tusaf, surah 61, shows Allah Ta'ala's incredible love for the people who engage in jihad fi sabilillah. Right? And Safa is just, that was the warfare of that time in different types of warfare one may not necessarily have to engage in formation of rules. Verses number 5 and 6, Allah Ta'ala spends one one eye talking about Sayyidina Musa Sayyidina Isa Islam with Qala Musa laqomi ya qomi that when Sayyidina Musa Islam said to his community ya qomi, oh my community lima tu'zunani why is it that you are hurting me? You are bringing iza to me, you are hurting me, harassing me, disappointing me. 
And even indeed you know that I'm the messenger of Allah Ta'ala has been sent to you. So what does this mean? So there's so many stories we did for you all across Surah Baqarah, Surah Maida, Surah Azab. So many instances of Sayyidina Musaysam in which Allah Ta'ala has mentioned in Quran how the Bani Israel used to refuse him, reject him, mock him, question him, disobey him. All the way up to outright shirk, most famous incident. And later on they killed his progeny from the Anbiya. So it shows, but it shows you that, look, I mean, again, and I used to tell you this in Surah Baqarah, a person feels so sad, right? And it shows you the shan of Sahaba also. The Sayyidina Rasulullah was utterly and absolutely pleased by his Sahaba. So much so that Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, we did this yesterday, anhum and here the Sahaba of Musa salam were not able to be pleasing to him. In fact, he had to address them. Why do you hurt me when you know I'm the messenger of Allah? But we sent to you. But we should think this about ourselves because it's in Quran that our actions, whenever we leave the sunnah, betray the sunnah, disavow the sunnah, harm the sunnah, then actually Sayyidina Rasulullah may say the same thing to us on the Day of Judgment. That why did you hurt me, disappoint me, let me down when you knew and accepted and had iman that I was the messenger of Allah Ta'ala sent to you. So it shows you general feature of the Anbiya that the Anbiya loved their believers. And when they're believe, when disbelievers say, and you see the Sunnah of the Prophet, I gave you that story yesterday, that the Jews came and they cursed him to his face and he was fine, he didn't, he told Ammar Aisha, don't get angry. But it's when their own believers disappoint them, that's what hurts the Anbiya. So real blasphemy law should be for believers, not for non-believers. Yes? Because the greatest blasphemy that is done in our deen is by the very believers of the deen itself. The greatest disappointment and betrayal is of the Ummati to their Nabi. Right? So this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sharing with us in Quran. Then, <coughs> what did Allah, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues, فَلَمَّا زَاغُوا So what does it mean? زَاغُوا means when they chose to deviate, and be crooked from the teachings of Sayyidina Musa Islam, أَزَاغُ اللَّهُ قُلُوبُهُمْ Then Allah ta'ala further deviated them away from the teachings of, further deviated their hearts. So this is very important. This is one of the many places in Quran where it's clear that no free will is negated. First a person makes their own choice. Allah Ta'ala's misguidance is always a consequence of their prior free choice to be misguided. Any time you see an ayah like that, Khatam Allah or Allah Ta'ala sends rust on their hearts, seals their hearts, or further deviates their hearts, it's after they chose the path of deviation themselves. And obviously when you deviate so much that you hurt the heart of your Prophet, then obviously Allah Ta'ala's anger is going to come into play. Right? Allah Ta'ala's wrath is going to come into play. Allah Ta'ala is going to set a seal on you. And this ayah is about the mu'mineen in Musa alayhi salam. Allahu Akbar. Right? So it means that maybe, maybe some of them even ended up outside of, outside of imam, of their deen. Wallahu la al fasikeen. And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never send his hidayah on a group of fasikeen. I explained this to you yesterday again. That open, avowed sinners. Then one ayah about Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. When Sayyidina Islam, the son of Maryam, he said that, O Bani Israel, I am the Prophet of Allah, Messenger of Allah sent to you. So this is also a delil in Quran that Sayyidina Islam is the Prophet for Bani Israel. He's the only Prophet that was sent to all of humanity is Sayyidina Rasulullah. So contrary to the belief of contemporary evangelical Christians, that they think their mission is to spend Christianity to the whole world. Actually, Quran teaches us that original Christianity was only intended for Bani Israel. The only deen that is for the whole world is, for, is the deen of Islam. So here he said 
that I am the messenger of Allah sent to you. That I am verifying with truth that which is already with you, literally that is present in your hands. What does that mean? Min Torah from the Torah. So he was first sent to the community of Jews that I'm confirming the scripture that you have. And I've come to you to give you the glad tidings of a messenger who will come after me. Ismuhu Ahmad Sallallahu His name is Ahmad. This is a reference to Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu And when Ahmad Sallallahu when the Prophet came to them with clear signs they said that this is clear magic. So in the first instance this is Allah Subhanahu rebuking the Jews of Medina Manorah that look your own scriptures mention the Prophet and even we sent another Prophet to you to you, Bani Israel, who was Sayyidina Isa Islam, and he also told you that there was another prophet coming. And as we explained to you last year in Surah Baqarah, the Jews were living in Medina of Nawra only for this reason had they settled there, because they knew that the last prophet was going to appear or migrate to and be visible to Medina. So they also knew it, right? But it's an amazing thing that here Allah SWT mentions clearly that uh, it's something that Sayyidina Isa Islam even gave the name of the Prophet. Alright. Now, question is that where does this does this exist in the current? Uh, the first thing I will tell you in a hadith from Sahih Muslim that Prophet has several names. So Sayyidina said that I'm Muhammad, I'm Ahmad, I'm Mahi. Mahi means the eraser, eraser that I erased. And Prophet said that because Allah Taala you, you will use me to erase kufr and shirk. I'm Hashir. Hashir means the one who gathers because people will be raised from their graves after I am raised. So this hadith establishes that the very first person to be called forth from the grave, resurrected from all of humanity, will be Sayyidina Rasulullah I'm also Aqib. Aqib means the last and final one because no Nabi shall come after me. Ajib. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim. Again we have to mention that person, although we don't enjoy mentioning him. But he, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Kalyani, uses this ayah and says, My name is Ahmad and I am the Prophet. That is mentioned in Quran that Isa Islam mentions. Allahu Akbar Kabira. Right? Ajeeb. Right? And I wanted to explain to you something I didn't last when we were in Ramadan. There is a group of people, they call themselves Lahori Kalyani or Lahori Amadi. And they say that we don't believe in him as a prophet. Therefore, don't call us disbeliever. So then we ask him, what do you believe in him? So we say, believe, we believe in him as Masih and Mahdi and Mujaddid. Okay, Masih means we say he's the Messiah, he's Isa Islam, come back. Mahdi, he's Imam Mahdi, and he's the Mujaddid. So this itself is flawed, right? He is not saying Isa Islam returned, nor is he the Mahdi. Because if you look at all the Hadiths, all of you even know enough about Alamat Qiyamat, then when Imam Mahdi comes, he fights the Jal. And then many other things happen. Amirza Ghulam Ahmed Gandhi lived, he never fought any Dajjal. He's passed away. That's confirmed. Everybody agrees he's died. And we haven't moved to that post-apocalyptic scenario that happens after Imam Mahdi died. Right? Then what the Lahori Qadhyanis are very clever, they try to get themselves on one thing. They say, look, fine, you can say we're people, we're Ahli Bidah, but you can't say we're Ahli Kufr. Because if you disagree with our estimation that he is Mahdi, Masih, or Mujaddid, but that doesn't constitute kufr. Kufr is only if we believe him to be a Nabi and we don't believe him to be a Nabi. Very clever, right? And technically, technically true that the accusation of disbelief will be on those people who view him to be a Nabi. But watch this very carefully. The problem, the fraud they commit is they're making it sound as if Mirza Ghulam Ahmad never made any claims 
And there's two groups, one group who views him as a Nabi and one group who views him as Messiah and Mahdi. But that is incorrect. Mirza Ghulam Ahmad himself claimed that he was a Nabi. I've read with my own eyes his original writings published by the Qadianis in Chanabnagar, which they like to call Rabwa, with my own eyes, right? So he himself claims he's a Nabi. So it's like me saying to you, all of you heard of Musaylamat al-Kazab, is saying, well, I, don't, I believe in Musaylamah, but I don't believe he was a Nabi. So you can't call me a kafir. But you say, but he said he was a Nabi. It's not a question of what you view about him. Why? Because any person who declares himself as a Nabi, it becomes an unbeliever. And becomes the lowest of the lowest of unbelievers. And you have to label him as such when he is openly in writing and in verbally claimed to be a Nabi. How could you view such a person as a Mahdi? A person who says he's a false claimant to prophethood is viewed in our deen as the lowest of the disbelievers. How could he be Mahdi who is the greatest believer after the prophets? Right? Khair, that's a difference of opinion. Some say he is at the rank of Abu Bakr, some say he is below. But I can't do that for you right now. Alright? So a Lahori Kaldiani, you required in deen that any person who claims that he's a prophet, you must state and believe and affirm in your heart that because he claims he's a prophet, he's a disbeliever. And if you don't do that, and if you in any way verify, certify, align yourself with that false claim into prophethood, then you yourself become a disbeliever. Therefore, all the Horekadianis are also disbelievers because they refuse to censor Mirza Ulam Ahmad Kadianis claim to Nabuwa. This should be 100% clear in the mind of everyone. Now, unfortunately, there are some Western scholars who don't know Urdu, so they never read these original works. So they were tricked and fooled. Hamza Yusuf, in particular, was tricked and fooled by the Lahori Qadianis living in America that, no, no, there are other people who view him as a prophet. We don't view him as a prophet. So he said once in a talk, okay, then you guys aren't unbeliever. But they never told them that Mirza Ghulam Ahmad claimed prophethood for himself. That's the major feature. That's the most important thing. Always remember the most important thing we're interested with Qadianis is not Qadianis, is Mirza Ghulam Ahmad. Who is he? What did he write? What did he say? What are his beliefs? That's the thing that we will talk about with certainty. Because he has written his own beliefs in his own word and every Qadiani today also accepts that those works are authentically attributed to him. So it's on the record. Alright? So Mirza Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani claimed to be a Nabi. And we can never ever accept that claim. And every person who wants to be Muslim must reject him entirely. You cannot view him even as a mu'min, let alone viewing him as a Mahdi or Masih or anything else. Right? Okay. And again, this is nothing, and I explained this to you in Ramadan, there's nothing illiberal and intolerant about this. Right? There's nothing illiberal and intolerant about this at all by denying a false claimant to prophethood. So it had to be mentioned because this is an ayah. And as I recited to you the uh, hadith in Sahih Muslim, the same hadith where Sayyidina Rasulullah says that my name is Muhammad Sassam, Ahmad Sassam, and that same hadith at the end, the Prophet said that I am also Aqib, there will be no Nabi after me. Alright? Okay. Last thing was that, question arises that where is this? This is just an interesting thing. So I thought I would share it with you that where in the Bible, because we would want to know, okay, I want to find this in the Bible. So what happens was the original Bible was in Hebrew, then it was translated into Greek, and then now it's been translated into English. So I couldn't discover the Hebrew word, but this much we could find was the Greek word is parakletos. 
there's a word in there. So I will quote to you a few passages. This is from the book in the Bible, which is called the book of John. So John is chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam said to the Bani Israel, specifically says to the Jews, it's exactly what's mentioned here, that Sayyidina was sent to the Bani Israel. Jesus said to the Jews, If you love me, you will keep to my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and He will give you another parakletos. I will pray to the Father, and He will give you another parakletos to be with you forever. And then 10 verses further, John, again chapter 14, verses 25-26, So these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the parakletos whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to you, re- bring to you reminder and remembrance all that I have said to you. Alright. What does parakletos do? What they do today in English is they translate this as the counselor. And they give all types of other views to who that counselor is. But parakletos in Greek means the one who is praised the most. That is Muhammad in Arabic. So Ahmad is the one who praises the most, Sallallahu And Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi was praised the most. So actually the word is there in the Greek. You can trace it back to the Greek of the Old Testament. But today in English they translate it in a different way. So it means even the current Bible still has those verses where Sayyidina Sallam tells the Bani Israel that there will be somebody who will be sent to you after me and he's going to confirm and remind you of everything that I brought. Alright. Verses number 7 onwards. That who can be more unjust and more terrible than that person who fabricates lies about Allah Islam, And such a person is themselves being invited towards the deen of Islam. And Allah can never guide a community of ungrateful, uh, unjust and oppressors. What they want is, they literally means they want to extinguish the nur of Allah with their mouths. What does it mean that this is how against deen of Islam they are? Even though Allah Ta'ala is inviting them to deen with compassion and mercy, Allah Ta'ala's promise of forgiveness is with them if they renounce the kufr except iman, but they use their mouths with such foul speech. And this is true of many of these websites today, true of even many illiberal, secular, agnostic Pakistanis today, that they use their words and they're actually trying to extinguish the nur of Allah SWT by saying such negative things about deen of Islam and the people of Islam and the ulama of Islam. So, and while they themselves are actually being invited to Islam, so again Allah Ta'ala says Allah Ta'ala cannot guide such a community who were, oh, sorry, that, but Allah Ta'ala says, Wallahu mutimmu nurihi, that Allah Ta'ala mutim itmam, Allah Ta'ala will complete his nur. Nothing can extinguish the nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even if the disbelievers dislike it severely, even if they abhor it. So, this is a general meaning of this uh, ayah and that ever since the coming of Deen of Islam you will find disbelievers who have always tried to ver- engage in verbal propaganda against Deen of Islam in an attempt in there, in the way Allah ta'ala describes it, to extinguish his nur. What does nur mean here, right? The nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, Allah Kurtubi mentioned number one, nur of Allah ta'ala means the nur of his hidayah. That they're trying to extinguish the nur of his hidayah. Second, the nur of his rahmah. They try to make people forget the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Third, nur could mean the Quran itself. Fourth, could mean the deen of Islam itself. Fifth, nur could mean Sayyidina Rasulullah and his sunnah himself. Uh, here, so these are some of the aqwal about what nur means. It can mean any and all of these things are meant. Alright? Verse number 10. Ya 
verse number 9 Allah subhanahu wa is that being who has sent his messenger with guidance وَدِينَ الْحَقِّ and has sent his messenger with the true real deen لِيُدْهِرَهُ عَلَى الدِّينِ كُلِّهِ So that by means of sending the Prophet and this true deen, so that this true deen could be manifest and dominate over all other deens entirely, وَلَوْ كَرِهَ الْمُشْرِكُونَ Even if the idolaters may dislike it, may abhor it. So this ayah establishes that deen of Islam, the Qur'an does make it clear that deen of Islam should be yudhir, means to be revealed and manifested, Right? Uh, but you can also take it to be established, right? So to be revealed and manifested and established over all other deens. The izhar and zuhur of our deen. So that's why Muslim today, many times, many of us who are educated in secular backgrounds, we have a little bit of a hesitation in being proud that deen of Islam is the greatest deen, last deen, final deen, only deen, best deen. And so you should never think that, yes, there's a certain level of liberalism, tolerance, and pluralism that is within Islam. But for us, liberalism cannot go so far as to say that, okay, our deen is also good and other ways of life are equally good. We can never say that. That, can, that is a liberalism that is born out of atheism. And you should never think that you have to align yourself as a Muslim with that liberalism that has as its premise atheism. So that liberalism that was within Islam is that, yes, in certain ways, and if you have been attending the tafsir for a long time, you would see those ways, where there's laws of love, compassion, mercy, kindness, cooperation, mutual peace between us and non-Muslims that the Quran is calling to. But in terms of theology, we can never say that their way of life is as good as ours, or their deen is as good as ours, or that's equally an okay option as long as we can just get along. No. Deen of Islam is zahir, it's muzhir, it's apparent, it's to be made apparent, it's to be revealed, to be established. It is the greatest deen over all other deens, even if others may not like this fact that the deen of Islam is proclaiming itself to be the greatest. Verse then, Ya Adina Amanu, Hal Adulukum Allah Tijaratin, okay, oh you believe, shall I, I mean, shall I, Allah Subhanahu guide you to such a trade? Tunjikum min adabin alim that it will save you from a painful punishment. What is that? Tu'minuna billahi wa rasulih that you believe in Allah and His Messenger Allah and you should strive in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with your wealth and possessions but anfusikum with yourselves and your lives. Dharakum khairulukum in kuntum ta'lamun. This is best for you if indeed you would if but you knew. يَغْفِرْ لُكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ Allah Ta'ala will forgive you all of your sins وَيُدْخِلْ لُكُمْ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِيمٍ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارُ And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala will enter you into gardens underneath which rivers flow وَمَسَاكِنَ تَيِّبَةً فِي جَنَّاتٍ أَدْن And into wonderful residences You can say splendor residences, mansions and palaces in such, uh, in this eternal Jannah and indeed this is the supreme and tremendous success and facility. But and then there's another bounty that you love, there's another thing that it is and you love that thing, and what is that? Nasrum minallahi that to get the help from Allah Subhanahu in this world, Karib and to have a victory that is near, and the basin give glad tidings to the believers of this also, not just of their Jannat and Akhirah, but that they will get help from Allah Ta'ala in this world and they will have a victory that is near. So the first thing was Tajara, Allah Subhanahu is just giving this as an example that a lot of us think, right, and this is maybe anticipating 
the whole rational choice economic theory of today that people are always thinking about utility maximization, profit maximization, what is most <coughs> beneficial for us. So sponsor says, okay, why should I not? I, Allah Ta'ala, guide you to a trade that is the most beneficial. First, Allah Ta'ala mentioned that will save you from painful punishment. That's because in this world, in trade, there are two things, profit and loss. The first thing is that good trade is that you save yourself from loss. That's the first thing, right? So that's the first thing Allah Ta'ala mentioned. That is beneficial, it will save you from painful punishment in the Akhirah. And obvious, and what is that trade to believe in Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet some strive? So here it's not just Kital, it's every sense of striving, striving in every sense for the sake of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that means that is the trade, right? And that is profitable. And then Allah Ta'ala mentions the profit that you will get. So not only will you be saved from loss from the paid punishment, but your sins will be forgiven, you will get Jannah, etc. etc. Then another bounty that you love is help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This part of this ayah, you should remember this, this is Surah Tussaf, Surah 61, verse 13. min Allahi wa fatun kareem. So our ulama and our mashaykh and our own shaykh mentioned this as a weird. That whenever you are in a situation where you feel that the disbelievers may harm you, or may threaten you, right? That you should recite this ayah repeatedly. Nasrum min Allahi wa fatun kareem. That help comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and victory is near. The lowest way to use this is at immigration. <laughs> Otherwise it has much better uses, right? But the real use of this is to be used in the battlefield when the enemy uh, armies are trying to kill you. Uh, and this is the help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that comes and the victory that is near. Alright, and the purpose of this was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to saying that the profits of this trade are not just in the Akhir but also to be felt in this world. Last time of this surah, surah number 14, Ya Adinamano, you believe, Kuna Ansarullah, that you should also be the helpers of Allah ta'ala. So here Allah ta'ala first said, Nasrum, that Allah ta'ala's help will come to you. Allah ta'ala makes it two way. Obviously, as we've explained before when such passes came, Allah ta'ala is beyond need of our help. But it means to help the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Kama Kali to the Hawariyin, which means his Sahaba, his companions. Man Ansari ilallah, that who will help be my helper uh, in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all those Sahaba said, Nahnu Ansarullah, that we will be the ones who help us when we will establish your deen. Fa'amanat ta'ifatum min Bani Israel. So actually, there was a group from the Bani Israel who did take proper iman in Salam. Wa kafarat ta'ifa. But rather that there was another group that took kufr. So the group of kufr had two groups. One that viewed Isa was Allah. And second that viewed Isa was the son of Allah. And the one who were the group who took iman was the group that said Isa was just the prophet of Allah. Neither son of Allah nor incarnation of Allah Taala. So this makes it clear that there were some original Christians who had true iman. Right? And then there were some who actually either they initially had kufr... Or it can also mean that from the Hawarin who originally said that we will be the helpers of Allah, some of them then deviated, a group of them then deviated and became disbelievers and started believing in the concept of the Trinity and etc. Fatul says, we helped the believers against their enemies. So this ayah also shows that the disbelieving Christians, the Christians who had adopted false doctrines, they waged enmity against the Christians who stayed in the original doctrine of the Prophet of Islam. And here Allah Ta'ala is saying He helped them against the others, the believing Christians against the deviant Christians. فَأَصْبَهُ ظَاهِرِينَ Literally means they rose in the morning such that they were ظاهرين, they were uh, apparent, they were victorious. It means that so eventually they became victorious. Now what does that mean? Because if we look in history it seems to us 
that actually know, right? Obviously, the other side is clearly one out. So, what this can mean two things. Number one, if you take the eye specifically here, it means that the original Christians, at least at that time, succeeded. It doesn't necessarily mean a military battle, but it means they succeeded in their battle of Aqidah, that they were able to remain on their Iman, and at least they passed away on Iman. They were successful in repelling the false Aqidah of the false Christians, but maybe they died out, right? Second, some ulama have taken this, the umum in this ayah to refer that even later, uh, that the mu'mineen of deen of Islam are the ones who truly believe in Isa islam and that Allah Ta'ala helped the mu'mineen against the false Christians in the battles that all of us know, we call them the Crusades in Western history. That is another long story. Surah Jamaah. And each and every single thing that is in heaven and earth glorifies and exalts the transcendent nature and wonders of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who is that Allah Al-Malik Al-Qudus Al-Aziz Al-Hakim. Al-Malik Al-Qudus Al-Aziz Al-Hakim. And we have explained all these four words to you yesterday. Who is the Ba'atha Fil Ummiyina. That Allah Ta'ala is that being who is sent amongst illiterate people. Rasulam Minhum. A prophet, a messenger from amongst her own selves. Who does what four things? Number one, Yatnu Alehim Ayatihi, who will recite to them the verses of scriptural revelation. And number two, will do their tazkiyah, will purify them. And number three, and then will teach them that book. And number four, will hikmah means hikmah means number four is and he will teach them hikmah. <coughs> and even though before this, they were in clear, manifest, wide from the mark, widespread error. Alright, so this is an ayah that has come before, right? Share. Uh, one thing I will just mention here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you've seen thus far, mostly Allah ta'ala ends these surahs by saying Al-Aziz al-Hakim. Here there's a slight interesting difference in Balagha that Allah ta'ala is beginning the surah in the first ayah by mentioning his Al-Aziz al-Hakim. So what does Al-Aziz mean? Al-Aziz means Allah ta'ala is almighty, but it also is related to the word Izza. It's Allah ta'ala is almighty, all honorable, all respectful. All might, honor, respect, Izza belongs to Allah Subhanahu and Al-Hakim, He is all-wise. So Allah Ta'ala is mentioning these two mm, sifat of His prior to mentioning the sending of the Prophet To out of His might and honor, infinite and limitless might and honor, and out of His infinite, limitless hikmah and wisdom, He sent Sayyidina Rasulullah for these four functions. Now, last year when we had done this, I had explained these four to you, but since some of you are new, and it's such an important teaching, I'll explain to you again very quickly. Four functions of Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu First thing is that our understanding of Nabuwa is Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi was Kamal and Mukammal. Absolutely perfect and absolutely complete. That's why he's the last and final prophet and messenger. Quran is the last and final book and scripture. Islam is the last and final deen and religion. What does that mean? That Kamal and Mukammal also means that he's as much a Nabi for us as he was for the Sahaba. How can that happen? Because we didn't see him. That can only happen when the teachings of his Nabuwa are as intact today as they were in the times of the Sahaba. So all of these four things necessarily, Quranically necessarily, must still exist today. So the first thing, all of you already knew that, Yatu Alayhi means the verses, so that's here, Quran Karim, it's in front of you, right? So exactly the same as Kamal and Mukammal Quran, Ayati Quran that Sahaba had, as Kamal and Mukammal Ayati Qurania we have. That is something all of you already knew. Exactly that way, 
all three things still have to be here. So the second thing is وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ Just like Sayyidina Rasulullah was able to bring about the Tathkiyah of Sahaba, just like that there will be Muzakkiyin, the teachings of his Tathkiyah will still remain today, and Al-Ulama Uwarathat Al-Anbiya, the Ulama, the heirs and inheritors of the Prophets, so one branch and class of Ulama will be the Ulama of Tathkiyah, they will teach those teachings, and it's possible to reach the same Tathkiyah today. Now what does that mean? Technically none of us can reach the maqam of a sahabi. But still today, until the end of time, a person can make themselves a person of Jannatul Firdos. Right? That has to be. That amount of tazkiyah still will be there. The potential to do so much tazkiyah, to purify oneself of sin, and to adorn oneself with virtue, and taqwa, and humility, and adab, and all of that, still has to be there all the way till the end of time such that it's still possible to reach Jannatul Firdos. Otherwise, the Nabi'ah and Nabi'ah would not be common and mukammal. Alright? Okay. Let me explain it to you in another way that I was explaining to some people recently. So, one thing is Sayyidina Rasulullah, he saw some hadith. Right? His sunnah. Alright, let me finish the ayah, then I can explain this to you even better. Third thing, وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ kitab. So, this establishes that the Quran cannot be understood on its own. Even by an erudite Arab scholar of Arabic who is Hafiz and Qari of Quran, because if just Tilawati ayat were sufficient, then Allah Ta'ala would not task the Prophet with this third task, Yu'allimuhum al Kitab, which is Talim al Kitab. Means even Sahabi Kram, just Tilawat of Quran is not sufficient for them. They must be taught their Ta'limat of Kitab. So first of all, the prophetic teachings of Kitab that has been collected by the Muhaddithin in their chapters they call Kitab al-Tafsir, that still must remain today. So this itself is a hujjat of Hadith. The authenticity and authority of Hadith is established from this ayah. Secondly, that when will, when will you engage with Qur'an in the sunnah way of engaging Qur'an, that's when there's talim and ta'allum. When you are also taught and you learn. Because that is the sunnah way of learning Qur'an. One is reciting Qur'an, that's on your own. So reading translation has no meaning in our deen. Self-study of translation has no meaning in our deen. To allow what the person does for the nur and zikr of Qur'an. Translation is not the way you get ilm of Qur'an. Ta'aleem and ta'allam, this is the sunnah way. Even sahaba had to be taught Qur'an. So alhamdulillah, those of you who have been coming regularly, so we are reviving that sunnah. That's one niyat that you should have when we sit in this door tafsir, that we are doing amal on this ayah of Qur'an following the sunnah method of learning and being taught Qur'an. And not, it's just me personally, but it's a tradition of our mufassirun, that their teachings are what we are transmitting to you. Okay? Last is, well, hikmah. It shows that Nabi Kareem Wasallam is teaching things other than Qur'an also. There are other talimat, extra Qur'anic teachings that constitute the teachings of wisdom. Many times that has to do with interpersonal relations. Sometimes it has to do with details of laws. Alright? So these are four things. Four things. Now I want to show you. I'm going to just take two things now. Tilawati ayat is a separate function. Tazkiyah and these two things that Allah Ta'ala also put together, Talim al-Kitab al-Hikmah. So where will you find Talim al-Kitab al-Hikmah that you find in the text of Hadith and Sunnah? Alright? Okay. How did the Sahaba get that? So this is what I will call in my own tabir, I'm going to call it the Batani Marfat of Sayyidina Rasulullah Why am I called Batan? Because it's also Wahi. It's part of his nabuwa, so it's also something Allah Ta'ala revealed on his batin, 
and his batani marifat was shared with the Sahaba through Talim al-Kitab al-Hikmah. Am I speaking too much Arabic for you? Huh? That the teachings of Quran and Sunnah of wisdom, the Prophet shared that with people, not on his own intellectual analysis, but based on what Allah Ta'ala revealed to him in his heart. So that was his own inner knowledge that he shared with people. How did the Sahaba get that? The Sahaba got that, now watch this carefully. It's much better than an Urdu, but I'll do my best. Sahaba got this through without any usul al-hadith, without ulum al-hadith, without, without nisab al-hadith, without kutub al-hadith. They got it directly. Directly from Sayyidina Rasulullah Without knowing what Sahih Hassan Zayf is, without knowing Mutawatir Mashur Khabarwal, without Bukhari Muslim Tirmidhi, without any collection, right? Without any curriculum, without any apparatus, without any methodology, they got it directly. The Batani Marafat of Sayyidina Rasulullah However, anybody who comes afterward can only get it through Usul al-Hadith, Ulum al-Hadith, Nisab al-Hadith, Kutub al-Hadith, Shuruhat al-Muhaddithin al-Hadith. We can only get it through that apparatus, through those means and methods, right? And curriculum and books and teachers who are not Hadith scholars. Exactly the same thing as Tazkiyah. Tazkiyah refers to the Batani Kifiyat of the Prophet Ta'limu Kitab al-Hikmah, Batani Marafat of the Prophet Tazkiyah batani kefiyat of the Prophet How did Sahaba get that directly? Just through Sahaba with Sayyidina Rasulullah They didn't need to do this zikr and this muraqabah and this. They didn't have to do any of that. <laughs> they got it directly. Without usul of Tazkiyah, without ulum of Tazkiyah, without nisab of Tazkiyah, without oh, teachers of Tazkiyah. They got it directly from the Prophet But anybody who comes after them, <laughs> just like in the world of Hadith and Tafsir and Talim and Kitab al has to go through that apparatus, Anyone who comes after them will have to go through the apparatus of Tazkiyah. There will have to be methods of Tazkiyah, scholars of Tazkiyah, curriculum of Tazkiyah, teachers of Tazkiyah. So exactly the same faith that we have in the Muhaddithin, their ulum and usul and nisab and kitab and shara of the batani marifat of the Prophet exactly the same faith we have in the Siddiqeen, Sadiqeen, Awliya, Zakirin, all words mentioned in Quran, in their ulum and usul and nisab and Shara of the Ulum of Tazkiyah. Simple. Simple enough. Alright? Okay. Then verse number 3. وَآخِرِينَ minhum لَمَّا يَلْحَكُوا بِهِمْ وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ Now you see Allah Ta'ala then. After, again, for taqeed Allah Ta'ala, after verse number 2, verse number 2 is when he's talking about sending the Prophet Sallam before it, verse number 1. After verse number 3, both of them Allah Ta'ala mentions that he is Al-Aziz Al-Hakim, that he is almighty, all-wise. وَآخِرِينَ minhum. So, and others from them, means that Sayyidina Rasulullah this is a contrast, like I told you before, Sayyidina Rasulullah is sent to Bani Israel, Sayyidina Rasulullah is sent to this unlettered nation, to this uh, Ummiyin group, but also to others from them, right? And who are such people, that whom they have not yet met? What is that? That all of those people who have not yet met, or you can rather say, actually, better, Lama yalhaku bihim, when they join them, right? So when me and you, we all join this line of believers, then the Bikram is also a Nabi for us. So this is the 
universality and really even you can say eternality of the Nabuat of Sayyidina Rasulullah and so number four, Zalaka Fadlullahi. This is the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he bestows it upon whomsoever he wills. Wallahu Dhul Fadlil Adim and Allah Ta'ala is the being of tremendous fuzzle, tremendous grace and gracious generosity. Alright? This is understood that this is first of all the Fadlun Azim is what that Sayyidina Rasulullah is the greatest of all of creation. He is Imam al Anbiya, Sayyid al Anbiya, Sayyid al Awwaleen wal Akhirin, Rahmatul al Alamin. Then that's the Rabt, and then the general meaning of verse number four is any Fazl of Allah SWT. So if you actually more second level of Rabt is if you link it to verse number two, whoever is fortunate enough to get as much of Tilawati Ayat, as much of Tazkiyah, as much of ilm of from, from talim of that kitab, as much of ilm that comes from talim of that hikmah, as much a person gets that's the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So first is the bestowal of prophethood on the prophets themselves, that is the great fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and how much any person gets to benefit from the ulum and nabuwat, that is also the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He bestows that on whomsoever he wills. What does that mean? That on our own we cannot become right mu'allim of Qur'an, or Mu'allim of Hikmah, or Muzakki. No, this is bestowed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's not something that can be done after one year Qur'an diploma course that we become Mu'allim al-Kitab. No. We haven't even finished being Muta'allim of kitab We haven't even finished learning. Alright? Okay. Verses number 5 to 8, and Allah switches topics and mentions an analogy of the Yahud. مَثْلَ الَّذِينَ هُمِّلُوا الطَّوْرَةِ So the likeness of those people who have, uh, you can say, bearing... I've been charged with or are bearing the Torah but what happens but then they fail to bear it Lam yahmiluha. fail to bear it means they fail to carry it out they fail to implement it they fail to live by kamatul al-himar is their likeness is like that of a donkey yahmilu asfar so the donkey is laden with carrying books but the donkey has no idea what the books are, is not able to read, understand, practice, live it. So just like that is Allah Ta'ala is giving a very stern analogy to the Yehud. Why? Because their Torah mentions the Mi'akadim Sassalam, but they're not following it. They're just carrying it. They're just keeping it. So they're not listening to it. So then Allah Subhanahu says, The terrible indeed is the likeness of that community who has falsified and denied and rejected the verses of Allah Ta'ala's revelation and the signs. Allah Ta'ala will never ever guide a community who are oppressed and unjust. Now this is actually specifically to the Jews. So say, O oh Jews, you could even say, say, O oh, those of you who follow Judaism, in the amtum, annakum awliya'ullah, that if you think that you are the friends of Allah sponsor, min dunin nas, other than and above than everyone else, to the exclusion of all of the rest of humanity, you specifically are the special beloved friends of Allah subhanahu wa in kuntum sadiqin, then you should yearn for death if indeed you are true, right? Wala yatamannawnahu, Abada, that they will never, ever, ever wish for death, ever. How could they ever do that? Because of all, look at all of the deeds that they have done and sent forth from them, the deeds they did with their own hands and have sent forth ahead. And Allah Ta'ala knows entirely every single thing about the, about the wrongdoers and oppressors. 
and in, say to them, Nabi Aksum, then indeed the death that you, Allah, the death that you flee from, indeed that death will come and do mulaqat with you, mean that death will certainly catch up with you, find you, it will itself come to meet you, even if you flee from it. And then you will be returned to that Allah subhanahu ta'ala who is the all-knower of what you, what, whatever was unseen, whatever you tried to conceal from Him and what you did openly in front of Him. And Allah ta'ala will then, he, he then will inform you of each and every, He will inform each and every one of you about each and every single thing that you ever did use to do. Alright. This is self-explanatory. We've done this before. Uh, the ayat about the Yehud and the Torah. Simply speaking, you can say, one thing I'll just mention, that should a Muslim yearn for death, right? So a Muslim doesn't yearn for death either. It comes in a date that no Muslim can pray for death. The only thing you can pray for is Allah to decree what is best for me. But what does happen is that those Muslims who attain nafsul mutmainna, Allah Ta'ala yearns for them, irji'i ila rabbiki radiyatam mardiyya. Allah Ta'ala wants to take them out of this. Why? Because this world is what the Prophet said, that this world is like a prison for the believer. But our humility is that we don't ask to be removed from the prison. We ask Allah Ta'ala to decree what is best for us. And one reason also is that if you have more life, especially the person who is pious, right? Because talking about awliya, the question is that, okay, they think they're awliya Allah, they should yearn for death. So does that mean that the real awliya Allah, right? That they should yearn for death. So no, real awliya Allah, number one, have adzi, they're humbled. They leave that to the command of Allah Ta'ala. They don't feel there's any right of theirs to ask Allah Ta'ala for anything. Secondly, real awliya Allah will want to continue doing work of the deen as long as Allah Ta'ala gives them. Right? So in fact, the longer they live, the more virtue. Because if they're awliya, every day is a swab from them. Every day they do amal saleh means every day they increase in the darajat of Jannah. So they're happy earning. Right? Because they want to maximize and then they want to help and guide others in the maximal way. So even if true awliya Allah wouldn't yearn for death, but it's talking about the false concept that the Jews had, which was, if you remember, in other places in the Quran, we showed you uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu not be showed you, other places in the Quran, has mentioned that the Jews say that, that fire will not even touch us, or only touch us for a little bit, right? So that was in the sense, they thought that they were friends without being awliya. They thought they were awliya without even having walaya, put it that way, right? That they're just the chosen ones, and they could do anything, not be on taqwa and anything. And they said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's the case, then you should simply yearn for death, but they would never ever do so. Verse number 9, this is now the ayah about, about which this uh, surah is named, Jummah. Ya ayyulladhina amanu, idha nudiya lissalati min yawmin jum'adi fas'aw ila dhikrillahi wa dhikrul bay, zalakum khiralakum min kuntum ta'namun. That we believe when the adhan is called out, idha nudiya, which is the nida, nida means the call out and the invitation for salat of the day of Jummah, Fas'aw, you should hasten and proceed quickly ila dhikrillah to the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you should leave all commerce and trade. This is better for you in kundum ta'lamun if only you knew. فَإِذَا كُذِيَةِ salah And when the salah is completed and you have fulfilled it and finished it فَانْتَشِرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ Then you may again then spread out and disperse in the land وَبْتَهُمْ مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ And you can again, it's permissible for you now after having previously been commanded to leave Baya now it is permissible for you to seek the bounty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَذْكُرُ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا لَأَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِهُونَ But you should again do the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abundantly لَأَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِهُونَ So that you may be successful. <coughs> okay, this may be the last ayah that I recite in Arabic today because the time is short so I'm just going to have to stick to English. Every now and then for our own enjoyment there are certain things that 
difficult not to recite. Very quickly, although you should all know by now, especially the men, all of the virtues of Jum'ah, right? I would just say here, number one, Allah Ta'ala has made it clear here that Jum'ah is fard. Fas'aw makes it fard that you must hasten to Jum'ah and Wadr al-Bay is also nahi that you must leave everything that you are doing In fact, let me do one more ayah Then we can just with verse number eleven. So, however, when they saw some trade taking place, oh lahwa, or they saw some futile, idle activity. So, what did they do? They hurried towards it. They hurried towards it, and what the kaima, and they left you, Prophet they left you. They're standing on the member. Kul ma min al and say that what it lies with Allah Ta'ala is better than lahu, better than your futile vain thing, minat tijara, and better than what is in trade, wallahu khairu razikin, and Allah Ta'ala is the best of providers. So first thing it means here that absolutely necessary, and this is one of the first laws that should be implemented Islamically, that in a Muslim country, all shops, businesses, everything should stop at the time of Jummah. And it's a great strategy that many people keep their shop open just to earn one, two hundred rupees. If you were to sit there and account how much sales they actually make in the time they could have just gone for Jummah and come back, it would not, for most shops, it wouldn't be more than just a few hundred rupees. And that's why Allah Ta'ala has also mentioned at the end of these three ayahs, Wallahu khairul razakeen, Allah Ta'ala is the best of providers. Allah Ta'ala knows that when you leave your bayah to go for Jummah, Outwardly, you will suffer some minor financial loss by closing your shop at that time or some efficiency by shutting your factory or your corporate office at that time. But Allah is the best ones of giving risk. Even this level of yakin, this country doesn't have, right? So if you really want to talk about the basics, this is one of the most basic things. That city whose markets cannot close during Jummah, why do you think that city will be saved from fitna and bombs and things like that, Right? They're turning away the barakah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is the first thing. Second thing I want to tell you that very quickly, because you need to know this, that in the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah and the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq and Sayyidina Umar as well, there was only one adhan. And that adhan for Jummah was the adhan that was called when the Imam Khatib, in the case of the Prophet and the Bikr had ascended onto the member to give the khutbah. Right? That is what me and you today call the second adhan. In the time of Sayyidina Uthman because now so much mashallah population of Medina Manawra that people were living further away even from the Jamia Masajid obviously other Masajid now than Masjid Nabu so Sayyidina Uthman instituted another Adhan which is an earlier one to be called earlier to signal to people that they should wrap up what they're doing and get ready so that by the time that original Adhan which is right before the Khutbah happens they're already sitting inside the Masjid the amal of Sahaba was the vast majority would be sitting there before the Adhan. That's why it's another interesting area of fiqh that a couple of Sahaba would trickle in and should they pray their nafal or not, this is a whole discussion in fiqh. It was just a few Sahaba would trickle in. Otherwise the vast majority were there anyway. This second Adhan, second added but now called earlier, right? nobody in the world can call this Ibida. It's not even correct to call this Ibida the Hasana. We don't even use the word Ibida the Hasana for this. Because Sayyidina Uthmanur was Sahaba from the Khulafai Rashidun and we follow it. Right? We accept it and everywhere it is considered Sunnah. We'll actually call it Sunnah to call that earlier than, even though the Prophet never called it. So this is the rank of the Mujtahideen Sahaba. Right? And this also shows that the Salaf Salihin would adopt new methods in deen. 
not even bidah hasana are they called. They're not even considered bidah. No one in the world would write that this is a bidah hasana of Sayyidina Uthman Rudyatana. Right? Again, few literalists in the world have abandoned this adhan, especially in certain places in the West, and they've gone back to the original model. Why would you leave what the Sahaba Ikram did? And this is something on which, by the way, people ask, has ever ijma happened? So this is one incident of ijma of Sahaba. Every single mujtahid, faqih, sahaba agreed with this ruling. So this is a case of unanimous agreement and consensus among sahaba who were alive at the time of Sayyidina Uthman anhu. So it's absolutely binding on us now. We must have the two adhans before Jummah. It's not a deal to say, oh, people have watches now and this and that. No. We must still have the two adhans before Jummah. Alright. Now the hukam is that different ulama have come up with different hukams, but after the first azan, anywhere from makru to haram, it is to engage in bayah. After the second azan, definitely outright haram. Literally that means that if the azan, which is called right before the khutbah, takes place in the market masjid, every single transaction that takes place in the immediate radius of that masjid is haram. It's absolutely haram. The money that is earned from that is haram money. The person who gave the money and took that good, that is haram for them. It's the piece of cupcake, it's haram for them to eat it. It becomes counted as haram food. It's a haram Pepsi for them to drink. It's that, all such transactions are haram. Alright? So we have to be very careful about this. Very, very careful about this. Alright? Okay. That is just few ahkam. There are many ahkam, but let me just tell you one or two of the fazail. You already know all the fazail of Jummah mentioned so many in, in many hadith in Bukhari Muslim. So many things. Maybe just mention a couple of things that may be new for you. Number one is that in Sahih Muslim, Sayyidina Abdullah said, said that people should refrain from neglecting Jummah. Otherwise, Allah Ta'ala will put a seal on their hearts. And they will become amongst the Ghafideen. And as they said that anybody who misses three consecutive Jummahs, Allah Ta'ala puts a seal on their hearts. Who neglects three consecutive Jummahs out of laziness. Second thing in Sahih Muslim, that there's hadith that mentioned that there's a sa'a, a moment and that a moment can be, we don't know how long that is. A moment doesn't, doesn't mean second, it means a time period, right? It could be one second, it could be one hour, on the day of Jummah when du'as are accepted. And Imam Muslim Rehman quoted some aqwal, that that is the time from when the Imam sits on the member until the Jummah Salah is completed. Others, a hadith in Tirmidhi, has said that this is the time between Asr and Maghrib, all right? Then the virtues of reciting Surah Kaf, Hadith and Tirmidhi, the Prophet said the person recites the first three verses even. First three verses of Surah Kaf, just first three verses of Surah Kaf every Friday will protect a person from the evil of Dajjal. This is something we should really do amal on because the evil of Dajjal doesn't just start when he comes. There's a precursor to him. There's mubadiyat to him. The stage has already been set to him. Right? Many of the Jalak evils are already present even if the Jal isn't here. So yet all of you know about reciting all Surah on Friday. This hadith is just the first three ayat. Who doesn't have time for that? To recite the first three ayat and for such a big thing to be protected from the evils of the Jal. Alright? Also virtues mentioned by reciting extra Drud and Salawat on Friday. Alright. Two things I want to mention here. First, does Friday have to be a holiday? So here Allah Ta'ala said in Quran that yes you can. So it's permissible that after Jummah that you can go back to work. The only reason that it is, if especially we take that hadith that from Asr to Maghrib is the time when Dua is accepted. So it's viewed that then afternoon because many times after Jummah Asr comes quite quickly, right? 
And if Asr to Maghrib is a time when Dua and Ibad is accepted, so many ulama felt that it was preferable that from Jummah to Maghrib, because they were thinking Asr to Maghrib, that time should be used in Ibadah. That's why they felt. So maybe you could think of a half day. But then when you come to pre-Jummah, then a person on Jummah should do some extra preparations, such as showering and all of those things mentioned in the Hadith, right? Trimming nails, trimming hair, etc., etc., etc. So as long as a person could do so, the idea would be that okay, if you need to work, work before Jummah in such a way that it doesn't change any of your amal on the sunnahs of Jummah, whether it's ghusl, whether it's ironing the best clothes, perfume, cutting nails, etc., Plus, it shouldn't prevent you from going early to Jummah. That's another hadith. You would remember that the person who comes earliest gets the rewards of a camel, then the next gets the reward of a goat, and all the way up to the reward of an egg, depending how late you come, right? So if you can work in such a way that you can do all of the sunnahs on Yom al-Jummah, come early to Salat al-Jummah, and try to spend at least a part of Asr to Maghrib in Ibadah, then that would be fine. Now, because as time progressed, it became difficult for people to balance Everybody has this problem, how can I balance, right? So they said, okay, just give them all Friday off, because they're not able to balance, alright? But otherwise, it's not necessary in our deen. And we don't have that concept like Christians and Jews do, that their holy day, Saturday and Sunday respectively, should be no work. No, Quran is establishing you can work. And maybe the ideal is to have that balance, because there's barakah in the work, especially between Jummah and Asr, there's barakah in the work that you do. So if you're a talab ilm as well, although the madrasas in Pakistan don't practice this, but my feeling is that from Jummah to Asr, you should use that in doing what you do. If you're a student, you should study. If you work, you should do your best work at that time. There's barakah in that because Allah mentioned that time is seeking the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So maybe a person would want to work at that time, right? But from Asr to Maghrib again is a time of ibadah. And this day, most of us don't have such tight control of our timetable. But if you ever have such control, you have a Friday off, you're on summer vacation, you're on break, then try at least sometimes to lead a Jummah according to these adab. Second thing to mention here is the use of the word dhikr in these ayat. Right? And then I have to explain to you verse 11 also. So very interestingly, what Allah Ta'ala talks about Jummah, so that means ibadah itself is called dhikr. Afterwards, Allah Ta'ala said that when you leave and you disperse on the earth, that you must remember Allah abundantly. So just these two ayahs emphasize the importance of dhikr inside ibadah and dhikr outside ibadah. Dhikr inside ibadah obviously should also be absolute. Dhikr outside ibadah should be kathir, should be abundant. So this is why we, this ayah shows, and this you've heard me talk about many times, but the importance of dhikr and learning to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And means that even when we seek the fuzzle of Allah, we should be remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times. Verse number 11 is an interesting incident, right? That I will explain to you. So the, what the Allah sponsor said that when they see trade, when they saw tijara or lahu, they left you standing. So this is an incident actually. Now at the outward you will be stunned. Sahaba left Jummah and they left Sayyidina standing on the khutbah. Only 12 Sahaba remained and one woman. 12 Sahaba and one Sahabiyat. All of the Sahaba and Sahabiyat left the masjid. Now if you don't understand what this is, if without hadith, this is another beautiful thing. So you need hadith to understand this ayah. Otherwise, first you won't even understand what this means. But even when I just told you that there was an incident in which the Sahaba left the message, you won't know that unless you accept hadith. Unless you gather all the hadith on this issue, you will get confused. So I will start with a hadith from the Marasil of Imam Abu Dawud, which is separate from his Sunan, but it offers the most details on this. And that is that number one, initially in Salatul Jummah, the khutbah was after the Salah. Like you see in Idain, first the Salah, then the khutbah. Second point, 
is that the Salah was mandatory and the Sahaba were not sure whether the Khutbah was mandatory or not. What happened was that this was a time of famine. Let's say famine, near famine, want, economic difficulty in Madinah Manamra. And Nabi Sallallahu had prayed the Salah and he was giving the Khutbah and it was well into the Khutbah when a herald or caller called inside the Masjid Nabi that a caravan of trade has come. The Sahaba left the Masjid. Reason they left the masjid was because they didn't think the khutbah was farad. They thought it was mustahab. Second, you would think, but still, how would you leave the Prophet speaking? Because there was a worry in their heart that, and this is mentioned in the books of Hadith, worry in their heart that the Jews and Munafikun would buy all of the goods and then exert monopoly and charge us exorbitant prices for food. So we have to make sure we get there. Always remember the way a person acts when there's enemies around them is different, right? So because of this worry that the Jews and Monophics would buy everything from the caravan first while we're listening to the khutbah, and then this will cause a great problem for us, we had better go. Of the twelve who stayed behind amongst those twelve was Sayyidina Bakr al-Siddiq, that he was amongst those who couldn't leave the Prophet. What does he need? The He's already given everything to the Prophet. What does he need any good from the caravan for? Right? But this is why the Sahaba meant reason I explain this to you is because the Hadith in Bukhari just mentions the incident and doesn't give any explanation, right? This is now I show you that you cannot understand. Some people say, I will only understand Quran from Bukhari. You can't do that. Somebody says, I will only understand Quran from Sahih Hadith. I've shown you this before. There are many ayat that you can never understand unless you accept Hassan and even sometimes Zayf Hadith. Without those added details in the Hadith and Marasil of Abu Dawood, you will never understand this ayat. Because the Hadith in Bukhari just says they were sitting there and then they left and they went to the caravan and only 12 Sahaba stayed. And Allah Ta'ala revealed this first. That's it. That's all Imam Bukhari had to say. Because that's, that's the Hadith that uh, was uh, received by him in his chain of narration. Okay? So this is the incident that happened. Then Allah Ta'ala then revealed this verse. Alright? Allah Ta'ala revealed this verse that no, they shouldn't go. And then Allah Ta'ala changed the hukam, but this is in Hadith that now then put the khutbah before the salah. And the khutbah is mandatory. So the hukam also changed and the tertib of Salat al-Jumma changed after this incident. All right? That's also something you learn from the hadith. All right? what, and now there's an Amumi teaching here. What ma indillahi khairun min al-lahwi wa min al-tijara. That what lies is better than lahu. Lahu means this futile, idle play in games. So this is also an ishara that the true mu'mineen are people that even for the sake of, because originally the khutbah was mustahab, right? So the original recipient of Sahaba, Watch this carefully that mustahabbat are better than lahu. Your recreational time, no. That's better spent in nafil ibadah, in acquiring ilm of deen, in going to gatherings of deen. What lies with Allah Ta'ala, the reward that lies with Allah Ta'ala over mustahabbat is better than lahu and even better than tijara. That doesn't mean you're farad earning, but instead of trying to become a multi-millionaire, better for you to engage in nafil ibadah and get the ilm of deen. Alright? So that is the umumi teaching, general teaching of this ayah their answer you must hear the munafiqun all right so now we come to the very rather self-explanatory uh, passages here and we've commented a lot on the munafiqun so other than a few places which I've marked we're going to go a little bit fast now as I told you so when the Munafikeen, when the hypocrites come to you, say, what do they say? That we testify and bear witness that you, Prophet, are indeed the Messenger of Allah. So then, what does Allah, who yashhadu 
in the munafiqin and laqadibun that indeed Allah Ta'ala know he Allah Ta'ala bears witness and testifies that the hypocrites are in fact liars and what they ittakhudu aymanuhum jannah we did this few lessons that they're taking their oath as a shield as a cover right to hide their hypocrisy and what are they doing they're preventing others on sabilillah from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and evil indeed is what they have what they do evil indeed is that which they do and what they have done why? This is because they initially believed thumma kafaru, and then they disbelieved. And what happened after that? Fatubiya ala kulubihim. Then their hearts, a seal was set on their hearts, fahum la yafkahun, and after that they were not able to understand. All right. So this is self-explanatory, right? About the munafikin that they were people who outwardly professed to be Muslim, but inwardly they didn't have iman. But the interesting thing here is that Allah Taala mentions that first, actually, they had iman. And then they disbelieved. So I had done this for you before that the two categories of munafikun. One was this category that had iman but was wavering and then they wavered out of it. And second were outright imposters who never ever had iman, who were always in the state of kufr. So here Allah Ta'ala is saying is that first group which we mentioned, the ones who had iman and then apostated, Allah Ta'ala was so upset at this act that you had iman out of your free will. Then you apostated out of your free will, then Allah Ta'ala set a seal on their hearts such that they could never return back to Iman. So this is why it's very dangerous for us. We are only possibility, alhamdulillah, we have of being a munafik is this one. Because we're not impossible. We have Iman. We have Amanu. Right? We are Amanu. But we don't want to be Thumma Kafaru. Right? We never want to fall into that. Less than Allah Ta'ala put a seal on our hearts as well. So that's why then in this surah and in hadith, any alamat of munafiq, any of the signs of the hypocrites, we should make sure that we don't even have a drop of them in ourselves. Lest it become something that swells up cancerously inside of us and makes us lose our iman. Second thing here we will say this far in verse 3, فَهُمْ لَا يَفْقَهُونَ means they don't have fiqh tafakku. So again, what does fiqh and understanding is being, earlier we linked it to fear, Allah Ta'ala linked it in Quran to fear. Here it's being linked to simply iman. Right? So actually all of these things, akal, fiqh, fikr, tadabbar, all of those are about spiritual sifat. They're not about intellectual erudition or intellectual or logical analysis. Then now verse number 4, Allah Spanta says, uh, okay, when, you look at the dis- when you look at the hypocrites, right? Tu'jibaka that their appearance is appealing to you. Literally, it means it brings you into wonder and hayra, ta'ajub. It makes you pleased with them when you see them. And when you listen to their words when they speak, uh, you listen attentively and you listen to their words attentively when they speak, it is as if they were propped up sticks or timbers leaning against something for support. They think that every single outcry is against them, that they are enemies. So beware of them. And then Allah Ta'ala says, May Allah Ta'ala destroy them. Uh, may Allah Ta'ala destroy them. How is it that they are deceived? Anna yu'fakun. That in what sense and look at how they've been deceived. And what is that? And when it is told to them, Yes, come. Yastagfir lukum. Rasulullah. That Sayyidina Rasulullah will make istighfar of you. It means that repent from your nifaq. And the Apostle himself will plead your case in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He himself will seek forgiveness for you in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What do they do? Right? They, they lawaw ru'usuhum. They turn their heads away. They spurn this invitation to come to the Apostle So you see that they avert their heads and they will turn away. Why? Hum mustakbirun. Because they are arrogant. They are the people of Kibar. Right? 
And then Allah Ta'ala says in verse 6 to the Prophet that Sava'un alayhim, that it is the same for them, whether you, Prophet whether you seek forgiveness for them or whether you do not. Why? Because either way, whether you were to seek forgiveness for them or you were Allah Ta'ala would never, ever, ever forgive them. And verily, indeed, Allah Ta'ala never, ever will guide a people who are openly sinful. They are the people who call out and they say that don't spend anything on those people who are with the Messenger of Allah and the Messenger until they have disbanded and dispersed. But know that to Allah subhanahu wa belongs all of the treasures of the heavens and the earth. But the hypocrites, what? La yafkahun. Again, they don't understand. So here, what is understanding that what is understanding that all might and power and wealth and treasure and provision lies with Allah subhanahu wa Verse number eight. They said that if we return to Medina Menorah, right? The more honorable and powerful from among us will surely drive out and exile the humbler and lower and more abased from us. So tell them, no, actually, Wallahil Izza, and all Izzat belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all honor belongs to Allah Rasulihi and to His beloved Messenger, Wallil Mu'minina, and Izza belongs to the Mu'minin, Wallakin al Munafikin Allah Ya'lamun, however, the hypocrites they don't know. So this ayah also makes it clear. That Izza belongs to Allah Ta'ala, the Messenger, and the true believers. Right? So if we have lost our Izza as an Ummah today, or we've lost our Izza as individuals today, it's only because we must have lost some aspect of our Iman, or many aspects of our Iman. Right? Otherwise, this ayah is true today as well. That Izzat, true Izzat, will only be for the for Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, for Sayyidina Rasulullah, and for the true Mu'minin. Alright, here then earlier Allah SWT mentioned two things about the munafiqeen that their appearance amazes you and their words amaze you. So what does it mean? Now sometimes to the Prophet but Sahaba Kram, this happens to people and happens today many times you're impressed. So there's a munafiq philosophy professor, right? And you get impressed by the way he carries himself, by the way he talks, by the words he speaks. Hmm? It's the same thing, same thing. So what Allah Ta'ala, the general teaching of this passage in Qur'an is that you shouldn't be impressed by the words of people such that it makes you question your iman, doubt your iman. Why are you so swayed by people's quote-unquote supposedly logical, rational arguments or their critiques and criticisms on your deen or the allegations that they level against your beloved Nabi Kareem Wasallam, and you're overwhelmed by that and then you're so impressed by who they are and their comportment and their manner and their features and their intelligence and yes, sometimes their looks and sometimes the way they carry themselves and even the way they dress, right? None of that should impress a person, but Izzat belongs to people of Iman and Taqwa. We are impressed and can only be impressed by a person's Iman and Taqwa. We cannot let anybody's appearance or arguments sway us in any way. Alright. Then the other three verses, very short uh, surah of Quran. Okay, now the surahs are going to get shorter as we pretty much from this forth honorably move on. Ya amanu. Alright. Remember that this should not oh you believe. What should not distract you? Your amwal, your wealth, property, possessions, properties, possessions, hmm? Should not distract you from the zikr of Allah Ta'ala and your children 
should not distract you from the zikr of Allah and any one of the believers who does that who lets his wealth, property, possessions or lets his children, progeny, lineage let them forget the zikr of Allah then such a person even though they're still a believer will be from the khasirun will be from amongst the people who suffer tremendous loss and who are from amongst the losers now what does this mean, right? how can wealth how can wealth distract us from the zikr of Allah that is easy number one it means that our desire for wealth may make us do something that is haram or engage in some type of commerce that is makruh or make us forget to pay our zakat many pious people even don't pay their zakat yes one is okay people who don't practice non-practicing means one of the things they don't practice they don't pay their zakat many full-fledged believing and otherwise practicing mu'mineen just forget to pay their zakat literally Say, yeah, there's two, three years have passed, I haven't paid my zakat. Not even because they're greedy, not because they're stingy, not because they don't believe in zakat. Simply, they will just say the exact words that Allah Ta'ala said. They forgot the zikr of Allah, say, we just forgot to pay. Right? So what does it mean? Allah Ta'ala is diagnosing it. It's because you loved your wealth. Your wealth distracted you from the zikr of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. Don't let yourself off the hook and say, no, it's not because I'm stingy, not, I don't have it, I just forgot. How could you just forget? <laughs> you can't just forget. There must have been some attraction to your wealth that you had in your heart that made you forget. Right? So that is, these are all ways that a person's wealth can make a person forget Allah subhanahu wa Second way is wealth and wealth can mean for us in a contemporary sense, you're earning your living, your jobs and careers. Hmm? Don't be so into your jobs and careers that it makes you neglect the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa and yet, zikr here can mean faraiz, but it can also mean wajibat, can also mean sunnah, can also mean Quran, can also mean dua, also mean salawat, can also mean zikr. Just nafil zikr, right? All of that is included here. So don't be so involved in your jobs and careers and promotions and earnings and bonuses that it makes you forget the zikr of Allah subhanahu That's another meaning you can take from this verse, right? Then, second thing, uh, here, let me skip that show from and show you the next ayah in verse number 10. So then Allah Ta'ala gives the cure for the first part that spend from that which we have provided you before death comes to any one of you. And at that point, when death comes, what will you say? That, oh my Rabb, if only you had granted me some stay, respite for a short while, what would I have done? فَأَصَدَّكَ Then I would have given in sadaqa. وَأَكُمْ مِنَ الصَّالِحِينَ And by giving in sadaqa, I would have been amongst the salihin. So it's not talking about zakat, it's talking about nafil charity. So the cure for the first thing, the cure for the first thing that don't let your wealth make you forget the remembrance of Allah, is to give in nafil charity. And don't delay in that until you die, and then a moment comes and you wish you could have done it, and another ishara is by giving sadaqah, a person can become amongst the salihin. So then most people here today are fortunate that many people may not even have surplus wealth that they could even donate in charity. But this is a means by which people who have surplus wealth can become salihin, that they should give sadaqah to become amongst the salihin. So verse number 10 gave the cure for the first part. The second thing was that children, don't let your children uh, let you forget the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright, what does this mean? 
rupt between these two is sometimes earning for children. So many times people say, when person this kind of people say that no, I wouldn't do rishwat, but for the sake of my wife and children, I do it. I wouldn't do X, Y, Z, but for the sake of my wife and children, I do it. Right? So again, Adal saying is no, you cannot love your children and want for your children something that is outside the realm of permissibility. You cannot break the laws of Allah Spanta for the sake of your children. Right? Second, it can also mean, right, and this can be with fathers, sometimes it's more with mothers, right? I don't know how to say this completely accurately, but let's say excessive love for the children. So much so that, that if a person loves for them something other than what Allah Ta'ala and His Messenger loves for them. So maybe let's call it unaligned love. Our true love that a parent has for a child is to love for their child what Allah Ta'ala and His Messenger some love for their child. And if they have any love for their child, love something else for their child that is even out of sync of that, is unaligned with that, then that is also a type. And later today we're going to do the ayat, going to inshallah ta'ala come, that your spouses and children can be a fitna for you. And that's another meaning, right? But here right now it's talking about don't forget the zikr of Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So when you take zikr to mean obedience to Allah subhanahu ta'ala, sometimes an excessive love for children, a person then bends the rules a little bit, right? So we shouldn't do that. Uh, we shouldn't do that. Then verse number 11, which is the last verse of this. Here this was just about the continuation of that dua that, oh, I wish Allah Ta'ala would have given me extra time so I can so I can become amongst the righteous. So verse number 11, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala says, That Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala will never ever grant respite, will never delay, right? The death coming will never let anybody stay behind beyond that path. When the time period has expired and come for that person, and Allah SWT is all informed and ever aware and fully aware of each and every single thing that you do. Surah Al Taqabun. Taqabun you can translate as the outdoing. Uh, let's see. Loss and gain. Alright. Here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, again, short surah, only six, eight, eight things I've marked. In the beginning, Yusabihullahi ma'afasam, it's the same beginning that every single thing that in the heavens and the earth glorifies, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala declares that He is exalted and transcendent to Him belongs all of the dominion to Him belongs all praise he alone is praiseworthy and he has power over each and every single thing Allah tells that being who has created you and from amongst you faminkum kafir wa minkum mu'min and from amongst you there are some who opt for disbelief who are disbelievers and from amongst you humanity there are those who opted for and are believers wallahu bimata'amuluna basir and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all aware and ever aware and watchful over us or Allah ta'ala is watchful over each and every single thing that you do Khalqa Samantha Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the heavens and the earth bil haq with absolutely truly wasawarakum and he fashioned them and designed them and settled them for asana surakum and then he beautified and made noble and beautiful and excellent and perfect that fashioning wa alayhi al masir and towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all of the return. Yalamu ma fasamata wal ardana ta knows each and everything that is in the firmament and the earth. Allah knows what you keep secret and what you conceal and keep secret and Allah knows that what you reveal and broadcast. And Allah has all knowledge over every single thing that you keep in your breasts. Alright? This is also what our Mashaikh use when they talk about Tazkiyah, they talk about Allah knowing our batin. 
right? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows each and every single thing that is in our batin. Alright. First thing Allah mentioned that from amongst you there are some believers and there are some disbelievers. This is just Allah Ta'ala saying that you can clearly see the choice there in humanity. This is something that many of our young university crowd takes the wrong way. They look around them and say, okay, there's some people who believe and there's some people who disbelieve and that starts putting them in doubt and skepticism. Then why are they people who disbelieve and I was born in a family of believers and then they end up in all types of their own rational philosophical conclusions. But Allah Ta'ala himself is saying this to you. That he created all of us and amongst us there are some who opt for belief and who opt for disbelief. So the purpose, the way you should have reflected on that was that there's a choice. And it's a stark choice. It's an important choice. And whatever you were born into, you have to make that choice for yourself. So you should opt in to the choice of Iman. Right? And then here then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala verse number 3 mentioned the physical creation because reflecting on his physical creation and how he fashioned it and how he fashioned it beautifully and remembering that to Allah ta'ala is our return is a way that a person can accept iman. All right? Then Allah ta'ala mentioned his sifat that he knows every single thing that is in the heavens and the earth and what we conceal. So, وَيَعْلَمُ مَا يُسِرُّونَ So he knows what you conceal in your sir. So it means that sometimes we harbor secret concealed emotions. That may not show themselves in our actions and deeds, but Allah Ta'ala knows that. That's why He says He knows what you hide in your breast. You know He knows what lies in your breast. Alright. Then Allah Ta'ala mentions the story of previous disbelievers. Alam Yatakum and has not the news of those disbelievers bygone previous uh disbelievers who have come before, has not their account and news, has it not come to you? Fadaku Babala Amrahim. And they tasted the evil, conse- evil consequence of their affairs and their matters and their doings. And to them there will be a tremendously painful punishment. Why? And that is because their messengers came to them with clear verses of revelation and clear signs. And they used to say that is it a human Yahdunana? Is it a human who is going to is who is claiming or aspiring to guide us for kafaru? And therefore they disbelieved in those messengers with Tawallu and they turned away. And know that Allah SWT turns away from them. Literally means that Allah SWT was mustaghni. Allah Ta'ala is absolutely independent and has no need for them whatsoever. Hamid and Allah Ta'ala is his very nature that he is absolutely independent of anyone and he is only and only worthy of praise. Then verse 7 that those who disbelieve they think that they will never ever be resurrected. So tell them that no, definitely and swear by my Rabb that each and every one of you will certainly surely be resurrected and then you will be told and informed about each and every single thing that you did and that and all of that is very simple and easy for Allah subhanahu therefore فَآمَنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولُ therefore you should believe in Allah Ta'ala believe in His Messenger and you should believe in the nur that Allah Ta'ala sent down and again the nur means Quran Al-Kareem or the nur of His Hidayah or the nur of His Rahmah why? and again Allah Ta'ala says that and Allah Ta'ala is, ever, is all informed of everything that you ever do then this is that day when Allah Ta'ala will gather and assemble every single person on that day of gathering. And that will be And that will be a day of outdoing. Right? That will be the day in which some have outdone others in, in, in khair and others will have outdone others in shar. 
So here then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning the there are two ways you can maybe translate this. The Ghabun is first of all the day of outdoing. So those we will be seeing those who outdid one another. Second you can take the Ghabun from Tafal which means two way. Two way means there will be some people on that day who will bring others into profit and there will be some people on that day who bring others into loss. Right? So there will be some people who will have harmed that day. And this is what you can so this is what you can say that it will also it will be a day of great loss. It can be a day of great gain. It will be a day of great outdoing. It will be a day of greatly being left behind. Means it's an extreme day. Put it that way. It's a day of extreme gain or extreme loss. It's a day where the person will have extremely outdone because even the lowest level of Jannah will have become person will because they have extremely outdone the one on the lowest level of Jannah, right? And it will be a case where people are extremely outdone even on the person who is the lowest, the lightest, if you can even speak in such a term, the lightest level of Jahannam will be viewed to be, have been extremely outdone by the person who is even in, again, if you can speak in such a per- term, of the least of Jannah, right? So any person who believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who carried out good deeds, Yukafir anhu sayyatihi, then Allah Ta'ala will will drop for them, away from them their sins. Then Allah Ta'ala will admit them into gardens and admit them into gardens, they will dwell therein, abada forever. And this is again the tremendous success. However, those who disbelieve and who have denied and falsified the verses of revelation and signs of Allah Ta'ala, they will be the companions and inhabitants and inmates of the fire of Jahannam. They will dwell therein forever. And is indeed the worst place for them to return to. Verse number 11 onwards. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions a wisdom uh, behind things that happen. Number one is that Allah says, Ma asaba min musibatin illa bi'idhnillah. That no calamity, no adversity afflicts you except by the leave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the will of Allah ta'ala, the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wa ma yu'min billahi in whosoever believes in us by yahdi kalbuhu. This is an important ayah we mentioned to you many times. The rub here is that whenever a difficulty comes, as long as the person has iman, Allah Ta'ala will guide that person's heart how to respond to that difficulty. Number two, Allah Ta'ala will send hidayah to that person's heart so that they will have solace and contentment. They can smoothly navigate that difficulty without doubt, without skepticism, without questioning, or without depression, anxiety, tension, right? That is the rapt here uh, of this phrase in terms of this ayah. Indeed, Allah Ta'ala has knowledge over each and everything. General meaning of this ayah is, and this is many times why we mentioned it to you, that whenever you have iman, Yahdi kalbuhu means that Allah Ta'ala will send hidayah on your heart. So sometimes we have to renew our iman, refresh our iman, or do an active iman. So for example, the person, al-haya'u iman, haya is iman, 
Haya is a branch of Iman. So whenever you have a moment of Haya, you can make du'a to Allah Ta'ala that moment. Whenever you lower your gaze, for example, or control yourself, for example, so you had a moment, episode, an act of Iman, so you can make du'a to Allah Ta'ala and you can recite this ayah, Allah Ta'ala, you said that whoever had Iman in you, you would send your hidayah on their kalb. Allah Ta'ala, I have Iman in you. I'm trying to control myself out of my Iman for you. Allah Ta'ala, send hidayah on my heart. Send hidayah in my heart to make me sperm, to make me strong, to make me steadfast, to make me increase in my love for you, increase in my fear for you. Right? This is the deep personal relationship Allah is offering to us in Quran. You have iman in Him, He will Himself send hidayah on your kalb, on your spiritual heart. Alright? I mean, Allah Ta'ala is not distant, He is not absent. That's sometimes what a person feels when a musibah comes to them. When a difficulty comes to them. So no, and Allah Ta'ala knows. That's why He said, Allah Ta'ala knows what's happening to you. He knows everything that's in your condition. He knows what you feel in your breast. That's why our Mashaik teaches that they all used to make dua to Allah Ta'ala this way. Allah Ta'ala tu janta hai ki me kis hal mein ho. That's coming from this ayah. <laughs> when the difficulty would come to them, that's just how they would make dua to Allah Ta'ala. Oh Allah, you know what condition I'm in. And Allah Ta'ala, you send hidayah into my heart how I should be in this condition or firm firm my heart up so I can manage through this difficulty. Verse of Allah, wa Rasula, and obey Allah Subhanahu and obey Sayyidina Rasulullah then this is another proof of the authority of the Prophet because obey Allah Ta'ala is one thing, wa Rasul, and that's the second thing. So in our deen we have to obey Allah Ta'ala, i.e. all the commandments and injunctions in Quran, and we have to obey Sayyidina Rasulullah that means all the commandments and injunctions in the Hadith and Sunnah. But if instead you spurn and turn back, then Allah Ta'ala says that on our beloved Messenger is nothing other than the clear delivery and communication and to make the communication reach to deliver it and to make it reach you clearly, that is all that he is responsible for. Allah 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 that Allah SWT says that being that there is no being worthy worship other than him. Wa Allah and in Allah SWT alone should it be that the, all the believers should trust. Ya ayyuhalladina amanu inna min azwajikum wa awladikum aduwallukum Difficult ayah. Literally means that O you who believe amongst your spouses and your children there are those who are enemies to you. Yes? Therefore you should be wary of them. Beware of them. Be wary of them. Right? But but if you were to pardon them and overlook that what they did and forgive them then you would find that indeed Allah subhanahu wa is forgiving and merciful. I will comment along with the second one. Verse 15. This is what I told you was coming. fitna. That indeed your wealth, property, possessions and your children and progeny and lineage is a fitna, is a test. Wallahu indahu ajrun azim. But with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a tremendous reward. Therefore, fattakullaha mustatatum. Therefore, you should fear Allah ta'ala as much as possible. Be aware and conscious of Him as much as possible. And you should listen and obey. Listen and obey. So here it doesn't say, right? Many people tell you that you must first question. This is the modernist approach to some listen, then question, and doubt, and critique, and then obey. If what you heard survives your process of questioning, doubting, and critiquing. Yes, that's how they secularize Islam. Listen, 
no problem. I can't say that because that's against freedom of expression. I have to tell you, you have to listen. You can read Quran these, but don't just follow it. That's what I tell you now. Take your own kajakar sunna magar vese ne manna. Us par sochna, sawal karna, tabsara karna. So Allah Ta'ala is saying, listen and obey. There's no, it's two step, two step process. Sametna wa atatna. Not question. They love to tell you this. This is their God critical inquiry. That you should question everything, you should question everyone, you should question anything. Don't follow anything without questioning it. My young son, daughter, you have to be liberal, you have to be open-minded, you have to be tolerant, you have to use your akal. God gave you a brain. Why did He give you a brain? So I say, Allah Ta'ala did not give me a brain to question Quran. Maybe Allah Ta'ala gave me a brain to question you. Right? Yes. Yes. Allah Ta'ala did not give me this brain to question Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. That's not why I was given the brain. Allah Ta'ala says, wa ati'u. Listen and obey. You see the difference between listen and obey and listen, then question, critique, analyze, wonder, ponder, and then obey? <laughs> There's a big difference. Big difference. Big difference. To listen and obey, anfiku, and then spend anfusukum. That is what is best for your own selves. This I did the same, I came, we did it yesterday. That person who can save themselves from the shah, from remember the miser and the stinginess of their self. From their nafs, then such people are successful. All right. Now we have to explain things here. First, spouses and children being enemies, and then wealth and children being a test. All right. What does it mean? Okay. So, enemies, this is a very strong word, right? That some of your spouses and children, I should say, you know, it should not be translated as wives and children. Azwaj and alad means spouses and children. Let's see. See, translated as wife or spouse? Wives, nay, it's spouses, it's, it's am. Azwaj, when it comes in plural, is am, it means spouses. Yes, it may, may mean wives, it can mean husbands, right? So some spouses and children, boys and girls, and the children as well, right? Sons and daughters, husbands and wives, and sons and daughters may be enemies towards you. So what does it mean? All right, okay. It's natural, obviously, that a person gets married... Uh, first of all, I'll mention there are some specific incidents that took place due to which this uh, hadith, mm, sorry, this ayah of Quran was revealed. Okay? Sayyidina Awf ibn Malik, he was a Sahaba and he wanted to go forth and proceed in jihad, and his wife and children prevented him. And they said that, you know, you're leaving us, you're abandoning us, you're going to leave us alone, what will happen to us if you don't come back to us? So when he heard this, Right, his heart softened because he loved his wife and children, so he didn't go. Then he stayed back. When he stayed back, and then he didn't then you know respond to the Prophet's call for madni jihad. So then Allah Subhanahu revealed this verse and said, "Look, some of your spouses and children. If in this original case it was a wife, but generally speaking, spouses and children are enemies to you. So it doesn't mean right what you would have literally thought. It means that they're calling you to something which is not good for you. Not that they're outright." Consciously being your enemies or hostile to you, but actually they call you to things which actually aren't good for you, right? So that means actually they're like an enemy, they're not an ally, they're not like a friend, right? So what does this mean? So that means that Allah has put natural love between the spouses and between parents and children. But again, that love should not reach an excess that it gets unaligned with the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Prophet, Deen, right? It should not make us do something against that. 
whether it's a husband, whether it's a wife, whether it's a son, whether it's a daughter. Love for any one of these should not lead us to sacrifice doing amal on any aspect of the sharia. And Muftashik has also said clearly that aswaj includes husband and wife and hence should be translated as spouses. Uh, it's not just son and daughter. Then immediately also said then your next eye that your wealth and children are also a test. What does that mean? That even the love for children is not just for the sake of loving them. The love for children is a test that can you use your love for them to bring them on virtue and taqwa. This one I explained to you I think in Ramadan. That love for children means can you love use your love for your child to make them the wali of Allah SWT. Can you lose, use the love for your child to make them a person of genital for those? That's why you love children. That's the true love, right? What type of love is it if you give them, get them into Harvard or for those, or Oxford or for those, or Lumsil for those? Hmm? That's a lesser type of love. The true love is that you do something to get your children admitted into genital for those. Right? Or full, full, full bridal for those. Hmm? Yes? So, yeah, you can do both. That's wonderful. There's no, no harm in any of those things, right? But real love for the children is that you're trying to bring them to wilaya. All of tirbiyatul ulad is this simple. That parent who can make their child at least assist, be an aid and assistant to their child to becoming the wali of Allah subhanahu wa that parent has done tirbiyatul ulad. And anything less than that means they fell into some level of fitna. Because it's our deen, right? Our deen teaches us the akhirah is the be-all and end-all of life. The akhirah is the be-all and end-all of our life. Alright? How wealth can be a test that I already explained to you earlier. Spending on the path of Allah subhanahu We've done that many times in Quran. So then the last thing uh, is verse number 17. And in Tukhrudullah Hakaradan Hasana, even I remember I did this for you in Ramadan. It came earlier if you lent Allah Ta'ala a beautiful loan and I explained to you what this means. Right, then Allah Ta'ala will double it for you and it can also look and multiply it many fold for you. But Yaqfirlukum and Allah Ta'ala will make that as a means of forgiving you for your sins. Wallahu Shukurun Halim. Now this is a special kindness and softness and mercy of Allah subhanahu wa First I will just explain that Iskarda Hasana means sadaqa, means charity. It doesn't mean non interest loan, it means charity. Right? Giving charity without an expectation to get it back, Allah Ta'ala will multiply that money in this world again for you and will multiply vastly the rewards for that and forgive you. Wallahu shakur. Now, what does it mean? The best way to translate is Allah Ta'ala is appreciative. It means Allah Ta'ala is qadirdan. He sees what you do, and if you do something for Him and you do something for Him and His sake alone, He will value it. And Allah Ta'ala is that being who knows how to value it. That's what it means to be a shakur. So Imam Tal is going to say thank you to you. That's what it means. He means he's qadr. He will appreciate that and value that and send hidayah and rahmah and nur and fazl and karam on you in this world and in the next. And the second thing is halim. And halim means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't punish immediately. He holds back. He withholds his punishment from you if you're a person who gives him this type of sadaqah. And finally, verse number 18, Alam al-Ghaybi wa shahada. Again, Allah knows everything that you conceal from him, what you do openly in front of him. Al-Aziz al-Hakim. And here it came again that Allah Ta'ala is almighty and Allah Ta'ala is all-wise. Surah Al-Talaq. Alright, some ahkam over here, but a lot of the laws of talaq and idda and etc. we had done for you earlier. Ya ayuhun Nabi, O Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, 
that when you divorce women now it's very difficult in English to explain this because I've told you this before the you sometimes is singular so you is you Prophet and sometimes is you plural in Arabic which means you Mu'minin in English you can't see that so obviously number one it's not you Prophet talaktum. those of you who've studied anta antum antum is the plural talaktum is when you all so actually it means and, and it's actually Somebody needs to translate this properly in English. That, oh, Nabi when you believers intend to divorce your women. Right? Why? Because number one, Nabi never ever divorced any one of his wives. So one sometimes people call it the Sunnah method of talaq. Sunnah method doesn't mean the Prophet never gave talaq. Giving talaq is not Sunnah. Giving talaq is highly makru and sometimes haram. At best, super makru. And at worst, super haram. Right? But the method in which Allah Ta'ala has instructed us how to give talaq, if a person, if they end up giving talaq in that way, then they can save themselves from the karahat of talaq. That is sometimes the fuqaha called it musnoon talaq. It's not sunnah to divorce. It's understood? Right? Okay. So what is the way to do that? So number one, فَتَلِّكُوا هُنَّا Oh you believers, you should divorce those wives of yours that you intend to divorce for some appropriate and acceptable reason. Uh, where we, uh, you should divorce them. Uh, so when you divorce them, you should divorce them such that you release them for their waiting period. Right? فَتَلِّكُوا هُنَّا That you should release them for their idda. Alright. Then, then you should count that idda. Alright, this I remember explained to you in the last videos of Ramadan, the detailed ahkam of the different types of idda and the different lengths of idda, divorcee, widow, post-menopause, pre-menopause, etc., etc. Or pregnant. And you should fear the sponsor who is your rab. Second, you should not take them out from their houses. You should not expel them. You cannot kick her out. And you divorced her. No. Right? She will remain in the iddat and you will be the one who is going to keep supporting her in terms of financial support. Obviously not emotional, etc. Because the nikah has broken in that sense. Right? But you and she should not expel them from their homes. Mm -hmm. Nor should they leave on their own. No, you should not expel them, nor should they leave themselves, illa unless they had perpetrated the ultimate indecency. Fahisha uh, mubayyina, and it's clearly established. Mubayyina also means established from bayan. So what does it mean a woman who has committed outright flagrant adultery and is known and established to have done so? That exception is that woman, then you don't, when you divorce her, you're not, you don't have to keep her in your home. And you don't have to do her maintenance and support. Okay? But that's an extremely rare situation. And these are the boundaries and limits that have been prescribed and set by the whosoever transgresses and outstrips those boundaries, first and foremost, they have wronged their own self. They're going to bring about harm to their own self. And you also never know, you never know, you don't know, you can say you never know, but Allah Ta'ala might bring about another order after that. Alright? So then, verse number two, and when the women uh, have reached close to the completing of their waiting periods of their iddah, then either you can keep them in good faith, what does that mean? That you can renew the nikah with them mutually, 
pleasure associated with people, patch up after giving one talak, right? And if not, then let the idda run out completely and then part with them honorably. So this word maruf, either you keep them be maruf or let them go be maruf, means honorably and in a good way that is customarily held to be noble. وَأَشْهِدُوا And then you should have, you should call to witness two just members of your community who should witness that and establish that testimony وَأَقِيمُ الشَّهَادَةَ لِلَّهِ And for the sake of Allah, I should establish the testimony that this husband and wife are no longer husband and wife and they have now completed their divorce and she has completed her waiting period and hence she is now free to marry someone else and others are free to propose to her. ذَلَكُمْ يُؤَذُ بِهِ Thus does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala admonish you and guide you and counsel you. مَنْ كَانَ يُؤْمِنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ And whosoever believes in Allah ta'ala and the last day. وَمَنْ يَتَّكِ اللَّهَ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا And whoever fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah ta'ala will give him a way out. وَيَرْزَقُهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ يَلَّا يَحْتَسِبْ And Allah ta'ala will send risk upon them from a place and ways that they could never ever imagine. وَمَنْ يَتَّوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ فَهُوَ حَسْبُهُ And whosoever has tawakkal on Allah ta'ala, trust and relies on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's position for them. In Allah ba'alaf amrihi And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always bring his affair, bring about his affairs to what he wills and decrees. And Allah Ta'ala has set and appointed a certain measure and a way for each and every single thing. Alright. So the laws of talaq, very quickly I will just say that quote-unquote sunnah talaq means number one, that a woman should only be divorced once. There is no reason or need in any way in deen of Islam for a man to pronounce three talaqs and any man who pronounces three talaqs in one go on his wife is irretrievably guilty of sin. There's no niyyah that warrants that. They may make toba later, that's a separate thing, but there is nothing that can remove them. They've committed a sinful act of divorce. Contrast to what is considered the noblest method of doing a highly unnoble thing, but if for some reason it comes to that, only one talaq, to be pronounced when the woman is in a state of duhr, in a state of purity, not when she is in her menstrual period, and to let that first idda complete itself and not offer any second talaq, and near the end, because after, before three, you can reconcile, give as many chances as to reconcile as possible, and then if close to the end of idda is decided that you will not reconcile, then let that idda expire and let her go her own way, after one talaq and the idat expires, the woman is completely free. There's no need for three talaqs. She's completely free. Marriage bond is completely finished. She can marry anyone that she wants. There's no need to do the three talaqs. Right? That is the method that is being mentioned over here. And this is considered the only acceptable way, only sin-free, sin, sin, yes, sin sin or sinless way in which a person can issue a divorce. Alright. Care the hukum about not taking the divorcee out of her home and not letting her leave. I already explained that. This has also been explained. Now, I want to explain two things. Now, you would normally have heard this ayah out of context. context What's the rub between here? Means that, look, whoever fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in regard to these two ayat means that out of your fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you must issue a divorce, you only do it in this way, that Allah ta'ala will make a way out. Second, it's for a woman, that okay, if the husband divorces her, but does so in this way, 
right? Or even it does so in any other way, for that matter. As long as she has her taqwa, Allah Ta'ala will give her a way out. A way out of, let's say, not every man is like this, but let's say it's an unfortunate case of an oppressive husband, abusive husband, unfair husband, unjust husband. If she has fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yaj'allahu makhraja, Allah ta'ala will make a way out for every such person who fears him. Right? So there's another link between that and this ayah. Then the next ayah, min la yahtasib, and Allah ta'ala will give risk to a person from where they never understood. It can be understood literally, that you can get financial wealth. The person with taqwa, Allah Ta'ala will take you out of your financial difficulty and give you financial risk from places where you never imagined. But it also means that for this woman, that now she has lost that risk support of the husband, emotional, otherwise, all types of support, right? But And she may think that there's no hope for me, I'll be a divorcee now. But if she adopts a life of taqwa, doesn't let herself fall into indecency, doesn't do anything inappropriate, and adheres to the laws of Idda, also erupt, as opposed to, like I told you in Ramadan, many women in Pakistan just completely deny the need for Idda because their rational mind doesn't see the need to stay in their home for that period. If she has taqwa and for the sake of following the command and will and wish of her Rabb, she spends the Idda, then Allah Ta'ala can min He can give her risk from places she never knew. He can send proposals again for her from places she could have never imagined, never dreamed of. So this is the way that Allah Ta'ala is consoling the divorcee woman. That okay, your husband has chosen to separate you, but you still have me. And if you hold fast to me, if you have taqwa, then I will then send a risk, emotional risk, physical risk, spiritual risk, financial risk upon you from places that you will never ever know. So the initial rapt is the tasalli that Allah Ta'ala is giving. And then he gives the second thing, And O oh, divorced woman, you should know that whosoever has tawakkal on Allah Ta'ala. Yes, we accept it's very difficult emotionally when a woman is divorced to do this, right? But if she is a mu'mina woman, she must make her iman strong enough. All of us, men and women, have to make our iman strong enough that in difficult times we still have taqwa and in difficult times we still have tawakkal on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So literally, oh divorced woman who has tawakkal on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for who hasbu, Allah ta'ala will be sufficient for you. Oh man, make sure you also have taqwa and don't go out of these boundaries and rules. And you should also have tawakkal on Allah ta'ala will be sufficient for you. Right? That if you're going to go through this process of divorce, do it in a way in which you have tawakkal and tawakkal, then Allah will be sufficient for you also afterwards. And maybe all can also happen that a man had an abusive wife, oppressive wife, due to which maybe he divorced her. Right? Allah will make a way out for you also. Don't go into behaya. Don't do something inappropriate until you get another nikah with another woman. Right? So this is what's being mentioned. So the general teaching is taqwa and tawakkul in times of difficulty. Allah Ta'ala will clear us out of that. Clear us out of that. In Allah Baalugh Amrihi. And then a person still thinks that no, fine. Sometimes a woman or even man can be in such a state of desperation. Fine, no, even Allah Ta'ala wants to help me. But how could such a person think that they're in such difficult times? They say this, obviously, technically it's kalima, the kufr. But they say that even if Allah Ta'ala wants me, uh, how can even Allah help me in my situation? Right? Means they think that I'm so oppressed. Allah Ta'ala is saying, no, inna Allah baligha amrihi. Don't worry. Allah Ta'ala will make happen what He decrees to happen. He will make it happen, even though you cannot understand at all how that is going to happen. Alright? So this is, and Allah Ta'ala has made a 
Qadr or Allah has made a measure for each and everything, a time and place and a measure for each and every single thing. So that is the rapt uh, in this passage uh, relating to divorce and iddat and generally it's a teaching and many times you will hear these phrases from Quran quoted in outside the context of divorce and iddat. It's a general teaching as well. Right? Okay. Then verse number... Mm, Verse number four onward. Okay, now here Allah is mentioning some of the hakam of idlat which we've done for you before, so we'll tell you very quickly. Verse number four that as far as for those, uh, as for those that you have doubt, if you are in doubt concerning those women who have been divorced who are postmenopausal, meaning they are past the stage of menstruation, then their waiting period is three months. All right, and the period of pregnant women, idlat, the waiting period of pregnant women will be whenever their term. Waiting period is the term of their delivery, whenever they deliver. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, now another general teaching, That whomsoever has taqwa for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will create ease in his matter. So again, the whole notion is that in this whole process of difficulty to have taqwa, another very important eye, which is an answer to modernism. So when the modernist Muslim or tells you, that no, Allah Ta'ala wants ease in your deen. So why don't you do what's easy? You say, yes. Allah Ta'ala has told me in Quran, ease. But the way Allah Ta'ala told me was this, That first of all, I have to have taqwa. The modernist deception is that ease means leave taqwa, lessen taqwa, lighten taqwa, moderate your taqwa. Right? No. Allah Ta'ala is saying in Quran, you will get ease. But myth number one, it's not going to come by reducing your taqwa. By having firm and steadfast maximum taqwa. Second, the ease in deen won't be of your making. No. Yaj'al means Allah Ta'ala will make. Allah will place the ease. So say, yes, there is ease in my deen. But the ease won't come of my making, it will come of Allah's making. There is ease in my deen, but it will only come when I increase in my taqwa. So they've twisted this concept. Right? Very important ayah. They never tell you this stuff, right? You never even knew this stuff. That Yusr and Taqwa have been linked in Quran. Alright? So, just so you know, it's a surah number 65, surah Taqwa, surah 65, and we are now in the last phrase, last few words of ayah number 4. anzalahu ilaykum. This is the command of Allah Ta'ala, and He has sent this command down to you. Again, that that person who has taqwa, who fears Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yukaffir anhu sayyatihi. Allah ta'ala will remove and expiate from them all of their evil deeds. lahu ajra. And Allah ta'ala will make azim that person's ajr. Means Allah ta'ala will make tremendous and immense that person's reward. So that's, that's simple. Taqwa will give us yusr in this world and give us ajra azim in the akhirah. And taqwa will give us a makhraj and a way out. And taqwa will give us Tawakkul will make it such that Allah Ta'ala is sufficient for everything that we need. Then some other commands about maintenance. Very simple. I did the details with you before last year. So, askinuhunna, that you should keep them with you, means you should grant them residence, sukna, you should house those women, keep those women in residence with you in the same manner in which you live, right? According to your standard of living, you must retain them. And you should not deprive them, nor should you reduce them to dire straits uh, or 
pressure them in any way. And if they are pregnant, if they are expecting, then you have to continue to provide for them all the way up until they deliver. And then if after they deliver, they choose to wet nurse that baby that was born, because you are the father, right? That, that baby that was born, and that you are also the father, then you should give them their due. Now what does that mean? Because you divorced her, she's no longer your wife. She's still the mother of the baby, right? But because she's not your wife and you want her to suckle, to wet nurse your baby, you will have to actually pay her. The way that, you know, like for example, you pay the uh, thy mother. Sometimes this was something that was done in Arabic and Islamic, Islam has accepted this in, in our deen, so you can actually give them, uh, you will ha- she is entitled to ask for the husband even for this. Uh, t- you can call the type of child support to begin with, right? And And you should consult one another in a noble and befitting manner. And if any one of you makes matters difficult for the other, then what you should do is uh, then okay, find somebody else, some other woman to suckle or wet nurse the child. All right. Here, all this means is that if they, you fall into such a disagreement over how much should be paid, then just find somebody else to do it. And this is the worst case scenario. This, but Allah Ta'ala is clearly guiding. You will see that sometimes after divorce, also in issues of child custody, child rearing, support, there are lots of arguments and people ideally should try to agree with one another mutually but if they can't then sometimes they have to refer outside verse number 7 then let those with plenty means let those who are wealthy spend according to their ability and as for those who have less whose provision is limited let them spend from whatever Allah has given them so what does it mean that those who are more well off they have to give more support and those who are less well off obviously they don't have money so they can have to give according to whatever ability Allah Ta'ala has given him then in yet another place where Allah Ta'ala says Ataha, that Allah Ta'ala does not burden a soul more than that which Allah Ta'ala has given that soul. Right? Allah Ta'ala does not task you financially with more than what financial risk Allah Ta'ala has given you. Sayyid Allahu Ba'da Usrin Yusra. Allah Ta'ala will bring after every difficulty, Allah Ta'ala will bring ease. Alright. So these are different, many different ahkam that we did here concerning idda, concerning divorce, concerning suckling, etc. And obviously this last part is the general teaching of Qur'an that whenever Allah Ta'ala will bring di- brings ease after every difficulty. Then verses number 8 onward, 8 to 12, Allah Ta'ala is mentioning some previous communities. Then indeed how many were the populations and towns and settlements that denied and defied and rebelled against the decree and commandments of the Rabb and of Allah, of Allah Ta'ala's messengers. So we severely took them to account and we, 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 uh, we took them to account and meted out to them uh, a severe reckoning and we punished them with an unheard of uh, punishment. What happens then that in verse 9 they tasted the consequences of their deeds and the outcome and end result of their deeds was what? That they khusra, that they ended up in absolute total loss. And Allah has prepared for them a severe and intense punishment. So therefore you should fear Allah, people of love, people of intelligence. Again, what did I show you yesterday? Fik, understanding, leads to fear. Fikr, reflection, leads to fear. Today, Ulul Albab, people of lub, people of profound insight, that is also what? Fattakullah, also to lead to fear. We can go through this in the Quran, every single thing that the modernist quotes, fikr, fiqh, lub, akal, all of that, they say it's supposed to question. No, it's supposed to fear Allah Ta'ala. All of those attributes are only to bring a person to fear Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. 
Alladina Amanu. And indeed those who have heard the Ulul Albab, they're Alladina Amanu, they're the ones who have believed. Kan Anzalallahu Ilaikum Dhikra. Indeed Allah Ta'ala has sent down and revealed a reminder <coughs> and a counsel and an admonishment to you. And what is that Rasulan? Yatnu alaikum ayatillahi and that there is a messenger of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala who recites Allah Ta'ala's verses to you, Mubayinat and those verses are clear and clarifying. So that by means of that recitation and teaching of verses that the believers can be ta- those who believe and do righteous works and acts of virtue and worship they can be taken out from all types of darknesses and to be brought into the nur of Allah Ta'ala's hidayah and mercy. And any such person, who, anyone who believes in Allah subhanahu wa ya'mal saliha and does, does righteous acts and virtuous deeds, yudhkilhu jannatin tajreemin tatal anhar, Allah ta'ala will enter them and admit them into gardens into which streams flow beneath <coughs> abada and they will enter there forever. And indeed Allah Ta'ala has given them the most noble, most beautiful, most excellent provision and sustenance. This is that same Allah Ta'ala that being who created the seven heavens, uh, seven firmaments in the heavens, and in the like manner seven tabqat or seven levels in this earth. And Allah SWT sends commands between them to you so that you may know that Allah Ta'ala has power over each and every single thing. And Allah Ta'ala's knowledge encompasses everything. Allah Ta'ala has encompassed every single thing inside of His knowledge. Alright. These are something we've also explained to you before. Seven heavens in Surah Al-Tahreem. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها النبي لما تحرم ما حل الله لك تبتغي مرضات أزواجك والله غفور رحيم. So here is famous incident in Quran al-Karim. So Surah Al-Tahrim means the act of making prohibited, and this is the very first ayah after which the surah is named. This is actually Sayyidina Rasulullah SAW used to visit Ummahat al-Mu'mineen after Asr salam, and this is also Sunnah. Right, again, difficult in this day and age because we don't manage our timetable as well. But those who have control over their schedule should try that from Asr to Maghrib they should spend some time with their family. Right? Actually, it's amazing the barakah that Allah put in the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah because I could tell you so many things that have been mentioned to do after Asr. Dhikr and Dua and Ibadah and time with family and the Prophet used to visit each of Ummahat al All of this is taking place between Asr and Maghrib. So here this is the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah I think all of you know the story that once Sayyidina Rasulullah had some honey I mean, ate some honey at the home of Umar Mu'mineen Sayyidatana Zainab bin Tijash Right? And then what happened was that Baru Yehutai I mean, you know not explained but Umar Mu'mineen Sayyidatana Aishir Vadanan Umar Mu'mineen Sayyidatana Hasir Vadanan They conferred with one another that okay, you know that Sayyidina Rasulullah Whenever, whichever one he visits first the next day, we will ask him that have you eaten maghafir? Maghafir is actually something, it's not honey, it's something that has a foul smell, right? And the Prophet was so mm-hmm, particular about his tahara. And those of you who were there were listening, you would have heard in the bayans and the Zambia and the Gulf that Sayyidina Rasulullah used to make miswak when he used to enter home first and then kiss Umm bin Aisha. So he's very particular uh, about his breath, right? 
So, uh, so this is what happened. And one of them mentioned it. So he said that no, no, I didn't have maghafir. I just had some honey. Oh, when I was with the, when I was in the hujra of Umm Sayyidina Zainab bint Jashwana, and then he said, then the Prophet thought that that honey, maybe there was something in that honey that has an after effect that makes a person have a inappropriate odor. And all of you know, the Prophet was miswak. He didn't eat raw onions for this reason, right? So he was very careful about that. So he said, okay, I will never have that honey again. Right? So when he said, I will never have that honey again, so Allah SWT is watching. So same Allah SWT who elsewhere has exonerated Ummu Mu'mineen and Aisha, same Allah Ta'ala will send ayah down to discipline. Right? Allah is Allah. He is the greatest one who does tarbiyah. So first he said to the Prophet right? And so let me now make you feel this ayah properly. Right? So you have to feel this ayah. Feel this ayah means how did Nabiya Kareem Sassam feel when he felt this ayah? So step by step. Ya ayyuhan Nabi. So when the Apostle Summer and for the, you see revelation is almost timeless. So the feelings are massive even on every word. So when Sayyidina Sassam heard this, Ya ayyuhan Nabi must have gotten so happy. <laughs> so happy. Then Limatu, even that is enough. Limatu, then why did you, oh, Allah, emotion would have changed completely. Ya ayyuhan Nabi, oh my Prophet, you must have gotten so happy. Limatu, why did you? Allahu Akbar. Sayyidina Rasulullah, yes, this is how he was. His whole demeanor would have changed. He would have been metaphorically, even physically sweating. Why did you? To harrimu, why did you make haram ma ahallallahu lak? Allahu Akbar, why did you make haram what Allah Ta'ala made halal to you? Now it's difficult, I will try to read this to you in Arabic so you can get the feeling. Ya ayyuhan nabi, lamatu harrimu. That's how the Prophet would have heard it. In the tone, Allah Akbar. At this point, he is terrified, right? And maybe so terrified at this point that he doesn't even have any idea what Allah SWT is talking about, right? Because number one, he didn't, right? He didn't make honey mutlaq and haram. He thought that that particular honey had that foul odor. And also just hearing these words of reprimand would have knocked him out of his senses. That's how much fear Sayyidina Rasulullah had for Allah SWT. So then Allah SWT brings him into his consciousness and tells him what gives him an ishara. Tabdaghi mardati azwajik. Now the person realizes oh, this is what Allah is talking about. <laughs> right? That you are seeking the pleasure of your other wives, right? Of your spouses. Wallahu ghafoorur rahim. Now the person relaxes. Right? Wallahu ghafoorur rahim. Then Allah Ta'ala does not want the Prophet to feel anything more than just for a fraction of a second because he loved the Prophet so immediately said, Don't worry, Allah Ta'ala is all forgiving, all merciful. This is a perfect example. This ayah can explain to you all both those previous ayahs that your wife, spouses can be a fitna for you. Right? And your wish to indulge your spouses can sometimes be a test for you. So this ayah itself explains one example from the seerah itself uh, of the meaning of those previous ayat. Alright. So then when Allah subhanahu ta'ala uh, revealed this um, ayah, then the Mufassirin said that why did Allah ta'ala make this part of Quran? Because this could have been private revelation like hadith, right? Uh, and even there are many things that Allah ta'ala revealed to the Prophet he didn't even necessarily say to us in hadith, right? But here this was done as teaching for all of humanity, right? That number one, that to show us how strictly 
and how strictly, how deeply, how acutely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did tarbiyah and tazkiyah of Sayyidina Rasulullah Therefore nobody can raise an objection against Ummahatul Mu'mineen. This is the way to understand. This is not this ayah is not showing the objection of Allah. This ayah is a testament to how perfect tazkiyah took place of Ummahatul Mu'mineen. That even the slightest of thing, Allah Ta'ala's wahi would take care of it. So by the end of deen, Ummahatul Mu'mineen will completely 100% pure tazkiyah. You understand? Right? So that's another reason why it's in Quran to establish that. Uh, and um, all right, and then so obviously, uh, uh, then the next ayah, uh, because the, the Prophet had taken an oath, right? So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, lakum That Allah ta'ala now has mandated and ordained for you that you should release yourself from that oath. Wallahu maulakum. And Allah Ta'ala is your mawla. Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala is your protecting friend. Hakim. And Allah Ta'ala is all-knowing and all-wise. Alright, so obviously the Nabi claims of some, because he took an oath never to eat honey again, but he's now absolved from that oath. And this is a general teaching to us, that when a person has taken an oath that is incorrect, right, then you have to break your oath, right? Now there's something called kafaratul yameen, that I explained to you separately, but there's an expiation you have to pay, right, and Alama Qurtubi Rumlatan his tafsirs mentioned that Sayyidina Susan paid that kafara. Kafarta you mean for breaking the oath so that next time he could. Um, so when the next time that he ate honey. Now comes another incident. Uh, that when Sayyidina Susan, let's say, intimately whispered or confided, let's say, whispered and confided an event or a story to one of his spouses. But then what happened? فَلَمَّا نَبَّأَتْ بِهِ وَأَظْهَرَهُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ Then that Ummah, that Ummah, meaning she disclosed it and then Allah Ta'ala revealed to the Prophet that she had disclosed that confidential uh, incident that you said. Uh, then uh, what happened? أَرَفَ بَعْضُهُ وَأَعْرَضَ عَنْ Then he made part of it known and then he disclaimed or disavowed part of it. And when the Prophet told her about it, So she said, that, Who told you about this? So the Prophet that, that Allah told me about this, who is all knowing and all, uh, all informed. You can say all knowing and all informed. Okay. So what is this? There's two possible incidents about this hadith. Some say that it's about this very same incident of the honey. So when Sayyidina Rasulullah took the oath not to have honey, uh, he told uh, the wife that he was in at that time, and commentaries are not clear whether this was Ummu Hafsa. We just know they made this agreement that whoever, which one of us he comes to, we will say this. Whichever one had said this to him, he told her not to tell the others because he didn't want Sayyidina Zainab bin Tijash's feeling to get hurt that he wouldn't have the honey. So she told him not to inform anyone else, but then she related it to the other one. Because the two of them had a plan. So she told the other one that Wukam Hogya, right? And then Allah Ta'ala then told the Prophet that she had related it. So then the Prophet went to her and said, You related it to the other, right? And some of us have also said that here Allah Ta'ala has also, this is an uh, ishara towards his forgiveness that the names of these Ummahatul women are not mentioned in Quran and not known uh, which one of us it was. There's a second, however, uh, There's a second incident. Uh, let's just—it's a long incident, but let's just say it's between Ummu Minin Hafsa and Ummu Minin 
Maria, and that it may have been an incident between them uh, that took place and uh, here. Uh, but Allama Kurtubiramta says that incident has not been narrated in any authentic hadith. So his preference is that this is referring to and it becomes it comes immediately after the ayat about the incident of honey. So his preference is that this ayah number three is related to about exactly is pertaining to the same incident of the honey. So we will just keep it on that uh, for brevity as well. All right. Verse number four. In tatuba ilallahi. That if then the two of you turn in Tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then your hearts were already, surely have already been inclined and turned in that direction. But if instead you assist each other, then this means if you insist one another against the Prophet right? Then know that if in that know that Allah Ta'ala is the Mawla, is the protecting friend of the Prophet with Jibrilu and the angel Jibreel is the protecting friend of uh, the Prophet and Wasalihul Mu'minin. And this is just Allah Ta'ala's mercy to the believers. That Allah Ta'ala had no need to say this, right? Allah Ta'ala's mercy to the believers that even the pious believers are protectors to the Prophet. Allah Akbar. This also you can know many incidents where Sayyidina Umar reprimanded his daughter Hafsa for doing something. Sayyidina Bakr Sayyidina would reprimand his daughter Aisha for doing something. So was Salihul Mu'mineen and the righteous believers are the protectors of the Prophet Zahira. And besides this, even the angels are also aids in providing support to the Prophet. So again, this is a credible mercy that Allah Ta'ala mentions himself, Angel Jabil then Saleh Mu'mineen, and then angels. Allahu Akbar. And the Mufassirun have also said here that Salihul Mu'mineen, this could even be you and me. What does it mean? That not in this incident that we could protect the Prophet against the Azwaj, not the current incident, but in the generic meaning. That Allah Ta'ala is saying that those who are true believers, they are protectors of the Sunnah, aids to the Sunnah, protectors of the honor of the Prophet that they don't behave foolishly and burn tires and overthrow cars and try to kill young Christian girls. <laughs> right? So the real Salih Mu'mineen are actually bring honor to the Prophet. They're the protectors of his honor and his dignity because they're the true upholders of his sunnah and his adab and akhlaq. And Allah Ta'ala mentions Salih Mu'mineen even before the Malaika. Look at the shan of the Salih Mu'min. Hmm? Look at the qurb the Salih Mu'min has with their Nabi. The true follower of that truest prophet. That's why we always tell ourselves and yourselves that we should try to be the truest followers of that truest prophet. And such that Allah Ta'ala even takes pride and pleasure in those truest followers and saying that they are the aids and allies and protectors of the Prophet. Then number five, Allah Ta'ala, the strong tirbiyat. Asarabuhu in talaka kunna. It's even possible that Allah Ta'ala says that if the Prophet divorces all of you, all of you, all of Mahatmameen, antum dilahu azwajan khayram min kunna, it's possible for Allah Ta'ala that He could then replace them, and Allah Ta'ala perhaps Allah Ta'ala would replace them and give him, and give the Prophet some better wives than you instead. Allah Akbar, very strong tirbiyat Allah Ta'ala does Mahatmameen. That's why again, our looking in his eyes, not, it's not showing their flaws, it's showing their kamal, their perfection. That teacher that works so hard on the student means that the student is going to become perfect, right? 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the muzakki hakiki. That's what he said in Quran. He is the real purifier. So after this process, Umahat al Mu'mineen are flawless. Are flawless. Right? So what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? That I, Allah says that we can, if we can divorce all of you, then his rab means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can certainly give him better wives than all of you instead. And how, what will they be? They will be Muslimat, Mu'minat, Kanitat, Ta'ibat, Abidat, Sabihat, Thayyibat, Wa'abkar. That Allah ta'ala can give him women who are Mm, but the Muslimat who submit, who are Muslims and submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're believers and faithful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're kanutat, they're devout to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're ta'ibat, they're repentant to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're abidat, they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're <coughs> sa'ihat, they're women who fast uh, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, women who were previously married, and abkar, and even women who were never previously married. So again, this didn't happen, obviously. This is just the way of tarbiyat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on Ummahatul Mu'mini. Then Allah ta'ala continues now in verse 6 addressing believers. Each 6, 7, 8 is addressing believers and 9 will address again the Apostles again. 6. Ya ayyuhalladina amanu ku anfusukum wa ahlikum nara. That you believe you should save yourself and your families from the fire of Jahannam. Wa ku nasu wal hijara. And the fuel of the fire of that Jahannam is human beings and stones. Alayha malaikatun. Ghiladun shidadun, and over that they are harsh and strong, appointed over that fire of Jahannam are stern and severe angels. Stern and severe angels. La yasunallaha ma amaruhum wa yafaluna ma yu'marun. And they can never ever disobey what Allah Ta'ala commands them. They will not refuse what Allah Ta'ala commands them. And they are always doing exactly, carrying out exactly what they have been instructed. What does that mean? That a person may have thought that, okay, angels are wardians over Jahannam. Maybe I can plead my case with them. Angels are soft, gentle creatures of nur and light. Allah says, no. They are ghiladun shidadun. Very strong words. Very strong words. Even the English term severe, harsh, strong doesn't even come near the Arabic. Ghilazun shidadun. Hardcore, stern angels who are guardians over Jahannam. And they will unflinchingly unflinchingly keep the people in Jahannam they will not even for a second even consider any plea that anyone makes the then second sorry so next is for disbelievers Ya ayyuhalladina kafaru that all oh, you who disbelieve la ta'tadiru don't present your udr don't present your excuses justifications rationalizations al yoma on this day of judgment Indeed, you are only being recompensed and punished for what you did and perpetrated. Then again back to me, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, tubu ilallahi tawbatan nasuha. So these two very often recited ayah, ku anfusukum wa ahlikum nara. This we've explained many times, save yourself and your family. So first and foremost, you have to save yourself. And then you're responsible to save your ahl. Ahl includes families and anybody who is in your daira. Anybody who is under your influence, anybody who because of their emotional relationship with you, their fondness of you or that you're their employer or colleague, whatever it is, that to whatever extent they're in your daira, to whatever extent they're under your influence, you should try to influence them in such a way that they go off the path of Jahannam and they go towards the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But first and foremost, we must save our own self from the fire of Jahannam. 
Here tubu illahi tawbatun nasuha. Many much explanation we have given on this that you must make tawbah to Allah Taala sincerely, truly means make true tawbah, be true to your tawbah means disavow all of your sins, promise never to commit them again, disconnect yourself from everything that connects you and reminds you to sin. Asarabukum ayyukafira ankum. Sayyatukum that soon indeed then Allah Ta'ala will wait for you and expiate for you all of your evil deeds. Wa yutlukum jinnat and Allah Ta'ala will make you enter into gardens and these river flows. And then on that day, Ajib, Yawma la yukhzillahun nabiyya maladina amanu ma'ahu. And that is the day that on that day of judgment Allah Ta'ala will not disgrace Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Allah Ta'ala will not disgrace the Prophet Sallallahu and those who have Iman with him. Allah Akbar. Right? And this is another series, and if you look at our Shaykh's book, Musanat Islam, he's gathered all the ayat where Allah Ta'ala has talked about, An-Nabi Walladina Amanu Ma'ahu. This is a concert Allah Ta'ala uses. Also shows the shan of Sahaba. Alladina Amanu Ma'ahu, those who took Iman with him, means first and foremost the Sahaba. And second, it means anyone who took Iman in and with the Prophet Sallallahu means all of the Ahl Iman. So those who truly took Iman with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will not disgrace the Prophet nor those who believe in him. Nuruhum and some of the also it means that Allah Amanu Billahi. No, Allah Ta'ala says what's the most important thing, those who took Iman in the Prophet. Because when you take Iman in the Prophet of Allah, you're necessarily taking Iman in Allah. But maybe a person may believe in Allah and doesn't believe in the Prophet. Right? So to believe in Allah Ta'ala through the Prophet and to believe in everything that came to the Prophet through Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. To believe in Allah Ta'ala through the Prophet and to believe in everything that came to the Prophet through Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. That is what is meant by this. Those are those people who will not be disgraced by Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala on the day. Nuruhum yas'abayna aidihim. That a nur will emanate from them and will travel ahead of them. imanihim And will travel on their right side. Uh, and they will say Allah Ta'ala complete for us our nur perpetuate for us our nur extend for us our nur and forgive us for our sins and indeed you have power over every single thing and in verse 9 then again Allah Ta'ala again addresses the Prophet that O Nabi you should fight and strive against the disbelievers and the hypocrites and you should be very stern with them. Same thing that you had here, Ghlad and the angels over fire of Jahannam. You should be stern with them. Stern over them. Alayhim, stern with them, stern upon them. Because indeed their abode is Jahannam. And what a terrible place it is to, for them to return to. Alright. So this is to strive. So here Allah SWT is talking about again those disbelievers and monophics who are oppressive and persecuting the believers. So being stern to them means that we must be stern and steadfast and firm with the forces of evil and injustice until they are extinguished and eliminated from earth. Either the evil and injustice is extinguished inside of them or if they remain on it then they have to be extinguished and removed as forces of evil and injustice on earth. And then the last three verses of the surah, then Allah Ta'ala has made an example or drawn drawn in a comparison and parallel for who? So there are three women here mentioned. Uh, two women here mentioned. The women means the wife of Nu salam and the woman meaning the wife of Lut salam. Kanata tahta abdaini. 
means that they're saying that they were under the means in the nikah they were under two of our servants and slaves means great ibad they were both anbiya so they were two prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but what did they do and isa ibadana salihaini two righteous and pious servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but the two of those women betrayed Khiana, betrayed the two of them. How did they betray? How could you not believe in your husband as a prophet, right? Your own husband has been bestowed with Nabuwa and you deny him and you reject him and you stay on kufr, right? So again, this is yet another thing Allah Ta'ala saved Nabiya Kareem Sassam from, right? This is a contrast between and one of the fadail and shan of Nabiya Kareem Sassam, contrary to false sectarian ideology that tries to attribute this also to our beloved Prophet Sallallahu And then Allah Ta'ala says and says that those two, meaning Sayyidina Nuh and Sayyidina Lut were not able to be of any assistance whatsoever to their two wives in the court of Allah Subhanahu means that they couldn't benefit them in any way. So what Allah is saying is that disbelievers should see that if a person disbelieves, even having a husband as a prophet will not help you in any way. Right? So then what happened? And it will be said to the two of them that the two of you enter into the fire of Jahannam along with all of those being told to enter the fire of Jahannam. So it means that a person has to have their own imam. Right? And nothing can help a person who is on disbelief. And then on the other hand, on the other hand, Allah Ta'ala has made an example and in parallel for, for the people who believe for who? Imrata Fir'aun. Opposite. She is a woman whose husband is not a Nabi, far from it, whose husband is one of the greatest kuffar ever to walk the face of this earth, Fir'aun. But is Kalat Rabbibnili in the Kabaitan Fil Jannah. So she took Iman. This is I mean the deep story of her that she took Iman. And Alama Lusi Rulmani has mentioned from the Israeliat a very long story of how she took Iman and how her own oppressed her and you know humiliated her in front of his court and in public. And so she made dua to Allah Ta'ala that Oh my Rabb, I wanted you to make for me, build for me a home by you in Jannah. Munajini min Fir'auna and save me and grant me deliverance and salvation from Fir'aun wa amalahi and from all of his actions and deeds and manipulations. Munajini min al dhalimin and save me from this entire oppressive, tyrannical people. Uh, I mean, the people of Fir'aun. And this, you know, you may have heard many times also that we say that Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu mentioned when uh, Umm Mu'manina Khadija was passing away, he told us that go say salam to two of my wives. And she said, two of your wives? I'm your first and only wife. What do you mean? And he said, Asya. And also coming now in the next verse to 12, say that Allah Ta'ala has given these two to my nikah in Jannah as well. Right? So, uh, this verse is the sign that these mm, wife of Nuh Islam and Lut Islam despite their wife, be, despite their husband being a prophet, they enter into Jahannam and these two great women, Asiya and Maryam Radha, despite wife being husband being for own or not having a husband, their husband will be saved not Rasulullah in all of eternity. So then the second thing is verse number twelve. Maryam Imran Farjaha. 
that and also Allah Ta'ala coins as an example in parallel to those two women. These two women, for the believers, this example is coined of who? Of Maryam who is the daughter of Imran, and she is the one who guarded her chastity, and in whom فَنَفَخْنَا min ruhina and we infused in her from our ruh and hence she then was mm was and she believed and attested and confirmed in complete truth to the kalimat to the statements and revelations and words of her Rabb Makutubihi and she attested to all of the scriptures of her Rabb Makan and she was from the devout and obedient servants and slaves. So here then in the end you have, you know, and this example is given for disbelievers and believers and also for all of the women who are listening now and whenever that uh, all the women and all of us should want for all of the women to be, if they are in a difficult situation, no woman could have a husband worse than her own. So the example in verse 11 is that no matter how difficult a situation a woman should be, she should make herself like Asya. And she can make the same dua, same exact dua she can make to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if she finds herself in any state of being oppressed. And if there is a woman who is not in a difficult situation, not oppressed, then she should also make herself like Sayyidina Maryam, that she should guard her chastity and modesty in the highest way and the most noblest way. So these two women are the women of purity and generally in our deen, the five greatest women and no particular order because you cannot mention any order per se are Ummumini Khadija Ramna, Ummumini Aisha Ramna, Sayyidina Fatima Ramna, Sayyidina Maryam Ramna and these are the five greatest women in the history of humanity whose many, many virtues and merits are mentioned. And someday some of the women scholars and teachers should do a course on these five great women and so that all of the women can learn maximally from the lives of these women. in every difficult time you make us people of taqwa, people of tawakkul. You let nothing in this world, no ideology in this world, no person in this world distract us from this taqwa, deviate us from this taqwa. Ya Allah, we want only and only the ease that you place in deen. We want only and only the ease that you grant in deen. And Ya Allah, we submit to your Quran that this ease will come after our taqwa. Ya Allah, make it easy for us to be on taqwa. Make taqwa within our reach. Put taqwa inside our heart. Put taqwa inside our homes. Give us eyes that have taqwa, tongues that have taqwa, thoughts of taqwa, feelings of taqwa. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, for us it feels that taqwa is the most difficult thing for us to have. Ya Allah, we ask that you put us in our reach. Make it easy for us, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, for so many years of difficulty getting taqwa, Ya Allah, we ask that you grant us that promised ease after difficulty. Make it easy for us to get taqwa. 
taqwa, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, grant us the ease of getting taqwa, Ya Allah. Make us amongst the muttaqeen, the mutawakkaleen, the mutatahireen. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, let us have sabr in every difficulty. Let us have husn in every difficulty. Ya Allah, if any, any one of us ever has to be separated from anyone in any way, Ya Allah, we ask that you enable us to do it in the most noble of ways, the most compassionate of ways, the most kind of ways. And Ya Allah, we make dua for all of our fellow Muslimin and Muslimat who are suffering from any unjust oppression, from any unjust husband or unjust wife. Ya Allah, we ask that you grant them sabri jameel. We ask that you grant them taqwa and tawakkul. Ya Allah, we ask that you send your promised madad and nusrat upon them. Ya Allah, put sukoon and itminan in their heart. Put sukoon and itminan in their life. Ya Allah, grant them a nur of your hidayah, the nur of your rahmah, the sukoon and itminan of your nur. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, in those of us who are ourselves spouses, Ya Allah, save us from ever doing any injustice, any unkindness. Forgive us for all of our failings in the past and make us true spouses in the future. And Ya Allah, each and every one of us is an ummati of Nabi Kareem, Sallallahu Alaihi Ya Allah, we ask that you include us in each and every one of us in those salih mu'mineen who are the honor of the Prophet who are the defender of the Prophet who are the true followers of the Prophet in Ya Allah we ask that you send hidayah on this ummah and save us from disgracing our own Nabi and let us be a means of gracing our own Nabi Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem restore us to our Iman grant us that grant us that izzah that is yours grant us that izzah that is our messengers grant us that uh, that izzah that you have promised is us if we are true. Ya Allah, we ask that you make us true mu'mineen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Rabbana takabal minna innaka anta samil alim. Utubu alayna innaka anta tawabu rahim. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin.